Uh, today uh, we'll discuss the election. <laughs> just, just, just <laughs> and how you're feeling about it. <laughs> Although, if we were to spend time talking about how we feel about the election, you would see a lot about how it is that we that we um, have views and opinions and how our identity becomes tethered to or formed around different views and opinions and how our identity with those views and opinions can become the cause of conflict and yet the, the recognizing of those ideas and views relating to them instead of from them can be the cause of freedom, the cause of understanding, cause of compassion, self-compassion and compassion for others who are also quite identified with their views and opinions. So that you relate to that a little bit, being identified with views and opinions? Okay. So today really was, a, to me, a, a, an opportunity to, to be quiet, to be mindful, to be kindful, the mixture of kindness and mindfulness. And if we did nothing but just practice being kindful or mindful, you would also quite naturally understand experientially what it's like to go through your life, um, as many moments as we're able to be mindful, to go through your life free of a view of self. Remember, I, the title was No Self, No Problem. It's, it is true, don't believe me when I say this, that when there is a moment of mindful attention, a moment of, of knowing with clear comprehension and openness what it is that's occurring, any moment, that moment of knowing what's occurring when it's happening, whether it's something happening, what we call internal mindfulness, our body, our, our some particular element of our body or our thoughts, or what we call external mindfulness, what is occurring at one of our different doors of perception, any moment of mindful attention is a moment free of a view of self. You cannot be somebody and be mindful in the same moment. Don't believe me. <laughs> and yet, um, yet all of us, each person here, is um, has a a felt experience. Tell me if I'm wrong, of being yourself. Everyone has a, each of you has a felt experience of a, the flavor of yourself. You kind of, you know when you're being yourself. Now another, one of the, the common flavors of being yourself is more often than not, I think it's maybe, I would say all the time, when we're being ourselves, we are not self-referencing. We're not saying, oh, I'm busy being myself, or I'm so-and-so, or I'm so-and-so. 
we're just experiencing our life, life flow through us. And in those moments, no view of self. So there is a paradox in all this. In order to really be yourself, to just feel that naturalness of you, that unique expression of life that is you, you can't be busy self-referencing at the same time. Do you know what I mean by self-referencing? I'm this way, I'm that way. It cannot be, at the same moment, a story of yourself. So being yourself and a story of yourself are two different things. And the Buddha was very interested in how it is that human beings become identified with the story of themselves innocently, naturally, because our story is made up of our memories and our associations, our location, our race, our gender, our shape and size. Our, each person has a what he called a personality view, a view of ourself, called it Sakaya Ditti. For those of you who don't know those Pali words, you can, you can have a, a great time looking up the, the word Sakaya Ditti. It's very central to the Buddha's teaching. Sakaya Ditti is from, a pla- from the vantage point of wisdom and liberation. It's also called avidya, which is wrong view. <laughs> I don't know why I find that humorous. The wrong, the wrong view <laughs> is that we mistake this view of ourselves this story of ourself, which is inevitable and important. And I certainly would love to hear every single person's view of self because I would find out a lot about you and your history. But if we take that view of ourself to be ourself or the, the complete version of ourselves, we are cheated because the view of self is just a partial approximation. It's a story. It's a narrative. It is a a limited perception of what you are in this very moment, which is not so easy in this very moment, it's not so easy to put into the word in, into words. So, if I ask you, "Who are you? What are you?" If you didn't consult your memory and you just felt that experience, it would be hard to say anything. You would not even be able to say, "I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a I'm a this or I'm a." You can't say anything on present evidence and have it be completely taking in your direct experience. Tell me if I'm wrong. Again, don't believe me. Just check this out. 
Who are you sitting here right now? The Tibetan, the Korean Zen tradition, the teacher will come into the room and say, Who are you? You think you know, you don't know. Keep don't know mind. And then they will give you a meditation instruction. Clear mind, clear mind. Don't know, don't know. And then you hear in the, if you look at some of the, what, uh, I don't know how many of you are, are well-read in the different Buddhist traditions, the different flavors, expressions of, of the Buddha Dharma, as the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, found their way through different, especially Asian cultures, they took on certain flavors mixed with the local traditions and the local language. You know, as, every, as Dharma goes into every culture, it's appropriated by the culture. And in fact, that was the, the Buddha's recommendation that you share the teachings in the idiom or in the language of the different culture. But language is so mixed in with custom and different cultural views that it naturally adapts. So, there, so as the teachings went from India through um, into China, the, the teachings became, um, became what's called, uh, in China they became the Chan teachings. When they went to Japan, they became Zen. When they went to Tibet, they became so the Chan and the Zen was part of what's called the Mahayana school. That when it went to Tibet, the Mahayana mixed with the Vajrayana. When it went to Southeast Asia, uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, and also in India, they had what's called the Theravada, or sometimes pejoratively called the Hinayana. The Hinayana meaning from the vantage point of the Mahayana, the lesser vehicle, the Mahayana, the greater vehicle, the Vajrayana, the view from above. The, so, you know, each one, because of ego, <laughs> had a different view of themselves as Buddhists. <laughs> so you can see the cultural manifestation of identity. They have, they set up this kind of uh, above, below, and equal to. That's what, the, that's what ego does. It's all about measuring. It's all about good, better, best. Now, is any of you in real time, in this moment, measurable, good, better, best? Where is good, better, best? Where is above, below, equal to in this moment of direct experience? is what the Buddha realized that all of these approximations, all of these notions of above, below, equal to, good, better, best, are just stories. They are agreed upon conceptual, social constructs that if not understood, if not, if not related to rather than related from, if, if they weren't if they're not understood, they torment us. They make us feel when we incarnate in an, in an erroneous view or an incomplete view of ourselves, 
They make us feel that there's something wrong. Something wrong with us. Something wrong with other. It's all the same. And so the Mahayana school, just getting back to all these vehicles, Mahayana school had a very succinct little teaching that's very analogous or very similar to having no view of self. Um, I mean, uh, clear mind, clear mind. Um, what was it? Don't know, don't know. Who are you? You think you know, you don't know. There, the Mahayana view is having no view of self. One is always peaceful. Very simple line. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So there's something in the teachings that want us to at least experience the difference between a view of ourselves, sakaya ditti, identity, ego, and our direct experience. My, the best example in, in modern times of this, the essential meaning of this is you can, uh, this is one that I could relate to anyway, James J. Audubon, you know, the Audubon Society, at the, he said, uh, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So if there's a difference between the idea of yourself and yourself, believe yourself. So the more we, we step out of the self-view, and so we do actually a couple things in our practice. We get to know ourselves outside of the narrative of ourselves. Just come into the simplest way you can talk about it is we first discover ourselves what, what we actually are in present evidence is basically six experiences, human being. Now the implications of this on a, on a collective scale, on a grand scale, or we'll talk about it as the day goes on, but it's enormous. That the whole world reflects everything, all our politics, everything reflects a, a kind of core ignorance of this basic experience of our humanity. The Buddha called it uh, delusion or avijja, ignorance. So there are basically three poisons that color our perception that when present in our mind, they make us see things unwisely, un, unclearly. And when we see things unclearly, we then act unwisely and unkindly. And then our actions start being driven by greed and hatred and more confusion, and then we get the world that we find ourselves in. So at the heart of, of our own radical social action is to, is to um, end delusion in our own understanding, in our own life. And in that way, become, again, it's easy to talk about, it's another thing to do, but become a, an expression of our deep sense of interbeing, our, our non-separateness, the expression which is wisdom and love and, and non-harming. That's what happens when we 
come out of the tangle of our misperceptions of reality, we, we start to just, like if I sit here with you long enough and we just, we marinate a little bit in, in a sense of presence, just being ourselves, we can't help but develop a lot of affection for each other. But if I sit back in my little isolated bubble of my own thoughts and say, hmm, this one, this one, this one, you're all bliss. Viewing through the lens of my views and opinions and likes and dislikes and all that, it reinforces a sense of contentiousness. So what comes, so what our practice comes down to is seeing what we are in actuality. And it starts, as I've started to say, in the simple sense that there are only six experiences that we are. There is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling things in the body or touching, and thinking. Six experiences coming and going. Everything in a state of change and flux. And we can begin to, to settle into that process of change that we are. And it allows us to get used to an experience of life that's not, not defined by a view of self. That it's not about a thought. It's about a direct experience. It's about me being here with you in full sense of immediacy. But in order for me to have that experience of immediacy with you, I cannot be caught up in, in, some, in my personality view. On the other hand, as I'm sitting here with you, from time to time, and you will from time to time, have some kind of view about me, about yourself, that will float through your mind. If that's noticed as a thought, as one of those six experiences, are you with me? If it's noticed as one of those six experiences, great. Oh, there's self-view. I'm relating to it. If that goes, if it's recognized, I'm essentially liberated in that moment. I'm free. Does that make sense? If that goes unnoticed, that view of myself, the way a Tibetan teacher in the Vajrayana tradition described it, says that little view of myself, that thought that appears in my mind, it spreads out into ordinary thinking. I start thinking. And he called that the chain of delusion. That's where we then incarnate. We become lost in. We start experiencing the, the, the world through the filter of our thoughts, our memories, perception based on memories, and we stop really connecting with, e with each ourselves and with each other intimately. So the deep cause of our, the loss of intimacy is this individual, is this preoccupation with our internal drama. So a lot of our practice is, is moment by moment using our senses to step out of the story of ourselves into a an intimate connection right here. So that means to feel whatever you're experiencing, to experience it. You don't have to 
go anywhere. It means to connect with life after your last drama has stopped and before the next one comes. So where are your dramas right now? The drama of your life. Where is your situation right now of your life as you're sitting here? Where's your story of your life? So it's being willing to know, oh, right in this moment, I'm not defined by my story. And I want to be able to get used to that. Feel safe here with myself. Just my experience as it is. So that's one half of the practice, is getting used to, getting to know that, that um, the bird. The second part of our practice, and one that reinforces the first, is to begin to recognize more clearly Akaya Ditti to recognize more clearly the view of self, to recognize moment by moment how it is that we, our mind, the creative aspect of our mind creates and then reinforces that uh, view of ourself that's, that's um, and then proliferates into worlds beyond this moment. So both to see how the field, what the field book says, field guide book says, and to experience the bird. And that's essentially what we'll be doing today, is we'll, we'll just marinate in the just being ourselves, not the view of ourselves. And we'll notice, and I'll try to put a light on all the different ways, or not all the different ways, but many of the different ways that we uh, create a sense of ourselves that uh, when recognized becomes just part of our humanity, when unrecognizes, when unrecognized it torments us. It makes us feel like there's something wrong. So how many of you right now have the view of self, view about anything, there's something wrong? How do we know that on present evidence? Doesn't it require that we consult our memory? So how about not just something wrong, how about something wrong with me? So how do you know that? if you don't consult your memory. We will look at today, we will look today at this view of self, Sakaya Ditti. We'll look at the, at the, um, there's a composite version of that. Says I, Usually, I am not enough, or I should be different than the way I am. Do you have that one? Any of you? Isn't that a funny line? I 
should be different than the way I am. If that line goes unnoticed, I enter into a world of tremendous insecurity, do I not? I'm not okay the way I am. I need to figure out how to be okay the way I am. I need to figure out my strategy. It's not going to happen right now. It's going to happen sometime in the future when I am okay. <laughs> but maybe it won't happen. Now I'm anxious and worried, frightened that life won't provide me okayness. And isn't it amazing? Nothing happened except a thought, I should be different than the way I am. And that thought spread out into ordinary thinking, a chain of delusion, and in that thought, I, like the way I like to think of it, I incarnated as the one who's not sufficient. How many of you, without that thought, can experience, how can I put, frame this? <coughs> just again, just notice what it's like to be free of that thought. I should be different than the way I am. Take that, remove that thought for a moment and experience yourself here. Now, why is that thought more trustworthy than your immediate direct experience? Uh, I don't think it's really possible to find on present evidence that you should be different than the way you are. We want to be able to notice the way we build, as the Buddha called it, the, the, build the house of self. You know, when his awakening, this is the last thing I'll say, and we'll, kind of, we'll, we'll play off of this a little as the day goes on, because you know, every time, at least in the history of, of the wisdom teachings, not every time, but very often, if a person has an, an awakening, they, wake up, they awaken out of some kind of confusion or delusion. They let out a song uh, that expresses their, their gladness and their, the sense of, of freedom that they experience. And the Buddha, after his awakening, he let out a song. And here was, here's what his song was. How many of you know the song of the Buddha when he awakened? He said, through many births, now you can think of a birth as every time you're born into one of these ideas, just, I'll, that's the only thing I'll say about it. Every time you're born into, a, into a, a view, something's wrong, something I have to fix, heal, liberate, all that, once I'm born, I have to kind of live through that life, that imagined version of myself. He said, through many births in the wandering on, 
I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken. That means um, defilements, all the confused <laughs> ideas. Your ridgepole destroyed, ignorance. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, your ridgepole destroyed, your mind gone to the unconditioned. Unconditioned means what you are before condition, prior to any idea. Your mind, my mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings cessation, trying to get somewhere, trying to make something happen, to cravings, the cessation of this craving, it has come. I'm no longer going out of myself in search. I'm finally home, right where I've always been, but I've been busy, as Thich Nhat Hanh would put it, the great Vietnamese master, he said, said, uh, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. And you finally come home to the place you've always been, always already free, unconditioned, but you've been lost in this... <clears throat> mistaken perception of yourself. So do you see any value in seeing through the self-illusion, any of you? We haven't really even sat today, but, but maybe you get the point of why, we're, why we might want to, to untangle the tangle of our views. To be able to relate to our idea of self rather than relate from it. Inner torment. So that's what we'll do today. So I'd like to invite you to, to refresh your posture a little bit. Um, and as we're doing that, I just want to, to say, even though we will step out of all the we will step out of all of our self-views. I also want to welcome everyone and their self-view, and your many self-views, and any of, on your many identities, even if they are either social or mental constructs, even if they are ultimately not true, we, are, we live in a world of differences, and, and we, must, we must, as you can see right now, we have to open our heart to our differences. and acknowledge our, our individual, our, our social collective views of ourselves as part of a, of a religion or race or gender or orientation. And every, every aspect, even though we talk about cutting through the self-view, it is not denying that each of us has our own individual expression of self-view. And all of that's welcome here. 
Every part of you is welcome. A big view of ourself that must be respected is a view of ourselves based on our race. Even though it's a, you look in the history of race, it's a social construct. ultimately no place where one race begins and another ends. But yet it's a, it has, we've become socially stratified into giving solidity to this, this particular view of self. So it has to be respected. We have to see that as it is. So it's not about denying our differences and our different experiences, but it's to see that at the root of it all we're we are um, beyond any of these views. So how to do that dance of appreciating our, our uniqueness and at the same time finding our unity. So welcome. Place to start is to join in the silence. In other words, share breath. And in order to share breath, share the silence, we want to find as, po as much as possible an upright, relaxed posture, letting our pelvis drop, tilt slightly forward so that our trunk is easily resting on our hips. Our neck resting easily on our neck. Just for the sake of alignment, you might want to sense whether your, your cheekbones are aligned with your occipital ridge. Neck easily on the shoulders, head easily on the neck. Releasing to the extent that we can all strain and tension. Letting ourselves melt into the support of the earth like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun. Feeling that point of contact where the rear touches the cushion or the chair. hovering long enough at that point of contact and hovering there long enough for the rear end to melt away and the chair to melt away and to just feel sensation. And feel the touch of our hands and whatever they're touching. there are no hands, just sensation. Touch of our lips and eyelids. There are no lips or eyelids, just sensation. 
and the shape of our body, the form of our sitting body, and its life, its vibration, its pulsing. Until there is no body, just the aliveness, just the sensations of sitting. naturally feeling the waves of sensation that we call breath. And it's just connecting with and sustaining our awareness of the body breathing and the sensations of expansion and contraction. brushing experience of the air as it passes our nostrils or upper lip. However it is that you feel that experience of breathing in and breathing out. Using these sensations of breathing as a means of brightening our attention creating the conditions for a calm abiding and focus. And just sinking into intimately this feeling of our body breathing as long as that lasts. And each breath letting go into a sense of immediacy. And we realize that we've drifted into the imaginary world of ourselves. And if we notice that, that means we're already back. We're here. And here again, with full awareness, we come back to our body and breath. Just getting used to being aware, embodied, just this moment, just this breath. And for the sitting, we'll just attend to the simple sensations of breathing. And as we go through the day, we'll include other experiences. Sweet simplicity, breathing, body breathing, fully aware.
and you realize that you've been lost in a story of yourself, your life, or anything. This is a moment of potential freedom to begin to relate to that story instead of from it. Know that you're thinking. Appreciate that moment that you wake up to where you are, relaxed. Gently know what it's like to be present again. Settle into your body. Open your senses. Back to your breath. Just this breath, just this moment. you're noticing your experience, it is the right experience, no matter what. And the experiences that you don't notice, it just means mindfulness is not present. And it's nobody's fault. It's just conditions. Just appreciate those moments of mindful presence. Embodied awareness. Just this moment. One more minute. Now remove that idea of time.
good news or bad news. I guess that's my way of uh, telling you that I'm curious. Uh, this is, could be a good time to, uh, for me to find out uh, what's happening for you so far just in this short time of being together. And I'm also curious what brought you here to this particular day and uh, anything that's been, any questions, any comments about anything you noticed during this short sitting or anything that's been set up to this point and an encouragement to, uh, to feel free today as a, one of the ways of releasing sometimes our, uh, our clinging to our views of self is to be able to just talk about it. As the Zen tradition, they call it confessing your delusions. And uh, it's, a, it's actually, when I'm able to dis disclose some kind of ego trip or inflation or deflation or some positionality, I, somehow it, it, it's, there's something joyous about it. But in any case, I'd just like to invite you to, to feel free and that it's likely that some comment that you have or question or description about your practice will be of some benefit to someone else. So, so curious, what brought you here? What are you noticing so far? Um, just so that I can also target what I um, share to, to your actual experience, not so it doesn't remain uh, theoretical. Please. Oh, you, oh, this is the mic. I don't know if we'll need it today in here. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm happy to repeat the question. Or comment, or description. I came here today because I'm pretty new to all of this, and one of the concepts I've been hearing that I've had the hardest time trying to understand is this whole idea of no real self. Obviously, you're hoping What does this no view of self or non-self mean? And it's a very central concept in the Buddhist teaching. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully that will clarify itself as the day goes on. It's already has begun. What's that? Already has begun, too. Oh, good. <laughs> Would you be willing to say what you have understood so far? Maybe you can bring the mic just so. And, and if that feels like no, you're putting you on the spot. I the distinction you made between um, the view of self and just the experience of, of being here and just the experience of what it, of just being oneself, I guess, that distinction was just ha having it described in that way was very helpful to me. you. Anyone else? Comment, question about what you noticed in the sitting time? Please, Susanoo. How to stop the chain of delusion. Anybody else interested in that? <laughs> I mean, that really, in we could phrase that question, how to stop the chain of delusion, as uh, 
how to work with the monkey mind, how to, how to calm our restless mind, all the... Uh, how do I feel better about myself? <laughs> and the, the main secret is to make that simple yet profound shift from being carried away by it to noticing it. So at the moment that you notice that there is a story of self or a view of self or a chain of delusion, that moment of noticing, that chain of delusion becomes the chain of awakening, becomes the cause of your freedom. You've stepped out of that, that chain, that linking one thought to another, because thoughts, if they're unnoticed, they're bent by their nature toward continuation, toward, toward, um, toward being lost in thought. So the moment that you wake up to that, that is a moment of, of freedom. That's a moment of relating to it instead of from it. So it's key. So I think people tend to under, undervalue the power of just noticing. That itself um, can't coexist. You know, that moment of, of noticing that and delusions can't coexist in the same moment. Basically, you're noticing what, where you had been deluded, where you had been lost, where you had been carried. So that's an, another way of reminding us is while we're carried along by a particular chain of delusion, by a particular story about ourselves, when we're carried away by it, there's nothing we can do while we're absorbed in it. It's just that a chain of delusion has arisen based on conditioning, habit, and mindfulness, attention, did not rise up to, to recognize it. Once mindfulness rises up to recognize it, ah, this is another thing to notice. It's not, it, it loses its power. It loses its, it's just, where did those thoughts go once you notice them? There's freedom. It loses its, its solidity, its power. But when that thought goes unrecognized, it keeps spreading out. It's bent by its nature to s substitute an imaginary, a, a, a false universe. That's, that's basically what our minds do. That's why it's so essential somewhere in the span of our life that we wake up, that we wake up and notice what our mind is doing. And that makes all the difference. And then the more we wake up to what our mind is doing, and this is the, the other part that helps it um, quiet a little bit, is if we keep seeing, if you keep seeing that this process of falling into a chain of delusion happens involuntarily, that it just happens, you know, I'm paying attention to my body and my breath, I'm going along, I'm walking, and all of a sudden I, I feel, I, I, I realize 10 steps down the road, 10 minutes down the road, a half hour down the road, that I've just been carried carried along in this, in this world of um, the imagined me, I call it. This 
I see that happens, and I see it over and over and over in the moments of waking up, that that just happened, and that it's just that the mindfulness didn't rise up to notice it until, that, until 10 minutes later, I will start to see that to judge myself for it, for something that is just based on conditions. To judge myself is foolish. It's unkind and unwise. Because it's no one's fault. It's conditions. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? So the more I see that that process happens all by itself, the, the wisdom of that pulls out the self-blame, pulls out the judgment. And when you pull out self-blame and self-judgment, you also pull out a very strong identity, a whole view that I should be able to control that. A lot of our identity, meditative identity, meditation identity is based on, I should be able to control my mind. I should be able to decide what goes in my mind, what comes out of my mind. But the more you pay attention to it, the more you see that the thoughts are their own thinkers, and they just generate by habit. They generate by many different causes and conditions, which we will el elaborate on as the day goes on. But right now, it's suffice to say that they come uninvited. They're nobody's fault. And the more you see that, you will, you will stop judging yourself. In the meantime, Wherever you wake up to where you are, another way of managing that chain of delusion is to treat that moment that you wake up and notice that you've been carried along, treat that as a moment of, of, um, of mercy, of kindness, saying, oh, I was just completely at the mercy of this habit, of this conditioning. And one, I'm so happy that I'm here now. And I, and I feel so affected by having been caught in that chain. My body has, has been frozen in a state of suspended happiness. I've been, been that, in that story. I was waiting to be okay. I'm okay now. The fact that I've noticed this, I'm having the right experience. And the fact that I'm harmed by that I've been harmed by where my mind took me through no fault of my own, I feel um, mercy. I feel self-compassion. And it's a, an, an opportunity to, 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 to engage in some gesture of kindness. Maybe rub your heart. Oh, happy I'm back. That was a hard ride. And I had no protection because there was no, there was no awareness while I was, there was no mindfulness. I was relating from that story of myself being prob in a problematic world instead of relating to it as, as a story. I want to be able to exploit those moments when I do wake up. That's what our practice is. Says, okay, I see you, Mara. Have you all heard of Mara? Mara is the, in the Buddha's teaching, the personification of that voice in our mind that's telling us to go elsewhere for happiness, to do something different than what we're doing, 
to be okay, to become someone, to get engaged in, um, in, in some kind of worldly activity, and it's telling you that you're not okay as you are. It's a voice of doubt. It's a voice of, of desire. It's a voice of ill will. It's a vo all the voices in our mind that are telling us that um, we need to get somewhere. And this is not to say that the world doesn't need our help in a million different ways, but it needs our help. It needs us to be whole to do that. It needs us to be courageous, strong, and balanced, and attentive to be able to, to engage. You say, heard some of those voices at the, some of the rallies, and I don't know how many of you tuned into. It's kind of a, a strength doesn't need uh, us to be um, the, so diminished from, uh, from our confusion and delusion that, we're not, that we can't be of benefit. But the voice of Mara says, it's not okay to just come home to yourself. It's not, it's not possible to be free. It's not possible to be whole. And who do you think you are? That's in a way that Mara came to visit the Buddha and said, come on, Mara, who do you think you are? You don't deserve this. You don't deserve to be awakened. Just go back and eat some, eat some better food, play some music, have a good time, do some good. But uh, the Buddha realized this is the, this is the voice of temptation that makes us leave our seat. And I, when I say leave your seat, it doesn't mean you remain in solitude. It means you stay present, stay whole. And it, it's out of that that he spent 45 years doing service. It always translates into passionate social action but it comes from a place of wholeness, not from a place of you should be doing this. You should be different than the way you are. That's Mara. How did I get on Mara? Somebody remind me. <laughs> Please. Uh, do the thoughts matter as, uh, in relationship to, to positive or negative? Say, tell me more about your question so I don't just, so I, so I really get it. Yeah. So the thoughts about ourselves, the yeah. negative ones and the positive ones. Yes, you know, positive views of self, if we're going to have views of ourselves, which we will, you want to have as positive views of self as possible. And you want to cultivate the positive views of self that, that are more in close proximity to your beauty, to your, the, riches, the richness of your nature, the uniqueness of your, of your being, the, your essential uh, openness, your essential qualities, 
Remember I talked about the word for, for um, I, I used the word avija earlier today. Anybody remember? That's otherwise known as ignorance. Sometimes used as when we have a mistaken view of self, it's, it's called avija. But the word, but our basic nature is called vija, not avija. Avija is without intelligence, without clarity of perception, without all the wholesome qualities. We get, we get confused. But our natural state is, is beautiful, is love, is light, is um, caring, is intelligence called vija, primordial intelligence. So anything that you think of yourself that reflects more of that natural, of your natural state and the, your unique expression of it that's not like anybody else, yeah, you want to have those thoughts. Those are useful thoughts. And it's very central in the Buddha's teaching of on the Eightfold Path, we've all read the Eightfold Path, one of the one of the limbs of the Eightfold Path is wise effort. And wise effort has within it the recommendation that, uh, that you cultivate what are called the four efforts. The four efforts are cultivating the wholesome. Thoughts, actions, words that gladden the heart and are onward leading toward more happiness. So cultivating the wholesome means having wholesome thoughts, loving thoughts, caring thoughts, um, so it includes thinking, and then maintaining the wholesome, and then the second part about negative, abandoning the unwholesome, and prevent and becoming so heartful, so mentally strong that you prevent the unwholesome from arising. So that's the fourth one, preventing the unwholesome from arising. So it's very much about seeing what is it in our mind, what is it in our actions, what is it in our words that is onward leading toward more happiness and what leads to more suffering. And you definitely want to cultivate. At the same time, part of cultivating the wholesome is, is moving in the direction of the wholesome qualities of mindfulness and discernment and investigation and interest and calm so that you can actually see through the illusion of self and then be liberated. So it's both working with our thoughts and also seeing through them as not really able to define us. Does that make sense? Please. Why do you... Why do you smile so little on this journey that you Why do you so often not smile from Rumi? How do we be lighter and happier about it, and how do we smile into the unknown? You start by smiling. And, I, you know, I like to, you know, as soon as you think of smiling into the unknown, you think in terms of time. Like we're going into the great unknown, as though we're not in the great unknown already. 
So the so if I'm smiling into the great unknown, there's also a tendency to think, if I smile into the great unknown, someday I'll be happy. Instead of someday is now. That the, all we ever have is unfolding present moments. Past moments gone, future moments unborn. There's just this. So we don't want to postpone smiling into the unknown. We smile into the unknown now. And we, and in, in that way we cultivate the wholesome. We plant the seed. This moment, the only moment that we have, again, next one hasn't happened, last one's gone. This moment is primordially open. Vija. It's intel there's intelligence here. It's a creative field of possibility. So this is this moment that we're sitting in together. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but it has no definition at all. So it it gets defined by what seed we plant here. Again, getting back to wise effort. What seed do you want to plant? And a plant to me the most the navigator of this whole process of awakening is being awake clearly comprehending what's happening and doing that with kindness because we see all the effects of how how what has happened to our minds and bodies and our world by being unawake so mercy compassion kindness as well as mindfulness that is the heart of it and then we smile into the unknown. So I just wanted to, to highlight the fact that we can create this whole trance of time, and that's often what makes us feel like we're inadequate. And there's, where is time now? Where is the unknown now? Where is the future now? Where is the past now? And you'll see that if you just, if you can learn to relax here, the only place that you are, you'll start to smile. You can't help it. You'll cry first. <laughs> Why do I say that? I'm curious. Why do I say you'll cry first? There'll be a, there'll be a letting go. There's often a, there's often a, a little sorrow for having missed ourselves. You know the from Basho, the Japanese poet. I've appropriated a lot of <laughs> Basho poetry. <laughs> He's just beautiful. But he said, uh, uh, just one line from Basho, he says, when in Kyoto the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. There's a, you were right here, but we're then, we're longing for what's, what's right here. And it's that, that opening of our heart. So we will we'll cry, feel kind of a sweet sadness. Eyes will tear as we're letting go into what we've always where we've always been, but we missed it. We longed for it. While in Kyoto, the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. I don't know if that makes sense, but Please.
two more and then we'll do some walking. Thank you for hanging in there so far without much movement. <laughs> cultivate when you cultivate these thoughts and wonderful things. really difficult person in your life who's not where who's not manifesting the things that you want to manifest how do you deal with that that's a really good question <laughs> yes hmm. so when you when you, there's obviously someone in your life who you're thinking of right now. So when you think of that person, how often do you think of that person? Okay. So each time you think of that person is a moment that you're actually not with them. You're not actually dealing with them, but you're recreating them in your mind. And in that moment of recreating them in your mind, you're cre recreating yourself as someone who is in opposition to that person. So you're recreating a narrative of, of opposition. I did that a lot during this election season. <laughs> and I keep doing it. <laughs> so it's very innocent and very human. But I see that there is something in the way that I'm framing, the way I'm thinking about it, the way I'm creating a sense of self and other that's actually intensifying my distress. Very often in moments where really nothing's happening. Very often in moments where I could be recovering, where I could be coming home to uh, a sense of well-being that doesn't depending, depend on the conditions that in my mind I'm recreating moment by moment a tremendous dependency on that person or that, that situation for my sense of well-being. And so in that way, because I'm, depend I'm creating that dependency on things that may not have happened, may not, will, may not happen, I'm what we would call in psychology, I'm self-abandoning. I'm leaving myself. I'm leaving that sense of of vija, of intelligence, of wholeness. So that, that part I can work with myself. I can notice the way that I'm recreating that person in my mind. I can notice that and put it to good use and make it be the cause of me coming back to myself. And just and feeling the again the mercy and kindness toward how much I'm how much I have self-abandoned, how much I'm at the effect of that person, I acknowledge my suffering. That can be begin. That can be part of the process of softening toward myself. And interestingly enough, the more I soften toward myself, I tend to soften toward another, and sometimes see them differently. Now that's a that's that's on your side. On the on the side of the person who is the so-called perpetrator, cause of your distress, <laughs> the one you've been blaming <laughs> for your, 
Again, this is all theoretical because I don't know your situation. You can begin to see them. There are many different ways to see them differently. One is they're, they're struggling with the same thing, their humanity, their, their dependency on conditions for their well-being, their, their notions of, of insecurity that make them uh, try so hard to be better than, good, better, best, or, or uh, above, below, above and, or equal, and just how much, what a torment is that, that their own mind and their own life is. I did that with one politician. And that actually helped me open my heart to that person's suffering. But in the case of this politician, it made me also ferociously want to protect anybody that got, in that, got into that person's, uh, was affected by that person's policies. And so it doesn't, mean, it doesn't preclude some very fierce action. But I try to do it with a, with a loving heart not let my anger and frustration turn into hatred. Yeah, you awaken out of it, out of it by, by noticing it with kindness. Noticing how, how you were carried along by that, that lifetime of your imagination in a way. So we begin to, by noticing self-view, we notice how much we are living in these imaginary worlds and recreating them. And how much we do that unconsciously, how we other, how we otherize uh, people, groups, and, and how we otherize ourselves. And that is super um, I, you know, I, I, I've been talking about this on Tuesday night in the, in the city, but I just spoke of it recently. So I've had a lot of practice, a lot of meditative experience, and a lot of, um, a lot of insights into the topics that we're talking about today. But I'm a white guy, so I have all kinds of unconscious shrouds of privilege and still don't know what I don't know all the time. And so I have to be especially vigilant and, and really consciously remember that people don't walk through this world as easy as I do. And that seems to, that shroud of identity that I that if you don't have to think about it, you don't even know you have it. That shroud of identity, that needs attention too. So on every kind of level, we want to be attuned to our, our personality views that are conscious and the ones that are unconscious. And I say, especially in this world, in, in our country, especially white folks, but everybody. There's all interracial, there's all kinds of cross-racial, Identity views and prejudices. I, I, everyone, but um, so that's just the more outer example of. I want to be 
attuned to that. How did I get on that topic? <laughs> Love talking about it, even though I'm completely clumsy in that domain. If I keep it in the pure Buddha Dharma, it's, it's much easier. But confessing my own delusions and realizing places that I'm, that's, it's not always comfortable. But it is what we need as a, as a, um, as a culture, as, a, as an earth. As we see the outer reflects the inner. So how are you, each of us, creating ourselves unconsciously, creating others unconsciously? And how, you can't do anything about it unless you notice it. That's why this, at the center of everything we do, the navigator on the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. And how can we have right mindfulness? It means show up for what our mind is doing, what we are how we're acting, how we're thinking, how we're, what we're saying. How can we do that? We also have to have concentration. We have to have our mind in the same location as our body. We have to orient ourselves right here, right now, to come to that center point where we don't just think about ourselves as connected to everyone, we feel it. And that itself, wise concentration, wise mindfulness, starts to melt away that sense of me-ness, that that sense of I'm separate. And we have this immediate experience. Oh, everyone is me. And it's no, no longer just a platitude. It's just an idea we're all one. It's something you feel. And there's a peace that comes with that. Having no view of self. In other words, no view of separateness. One is peaceful. As Rumi put it, you, he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of, of me thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. That's what, so that's part of why it's very germane to the wor our world of social justice and racism and sexism and everything and um, all of the isms it's so germane to do our own uh, social action of melting away these views of self please um, well i want to thank you for your practice today and because it really kind of like reminds me of gratitude too kind mm. of like just sitting still and being grateful that Beautiful. It's okay to be myself. And I think that for me, like the year is like very clear that not only can we be learning and find like big expectations about who I am. Mm. And that has been like a lot of that sense, you know, like, I was here and I was freaking out um, because I have this moment where I felt like I was passing out and like I was in these colors and I was sweating and um, 
really helpful getting your insurance, you know, like, this is right here. And I kind of, like, had this moment where I felt like, okay, you have two kids, like, it shouldn't cost you there. Like, yes. you're safe, like, you're being taken care of. Yes. And then it reminded me of, again, like, gratitude, you know, like, I can have this awakening if I'm, I'm not open to the idea to Yes, I cannot have awakenings unless I'm open to the and idea like of having okay. pain. Like that's part of being a human being. Yeah, like beautiful. I have to remove these expectation problems of because I'm the one creating the story. Yes. I love what you're saying, and but you don't have to get rid of those expectations of yourself. You just need to notice them. Because you will have, we're conditioned to have expectations. and But we can say, oh, I see you, Mara. And you know what, what happened when the Buddha would see Mara? Mara would slink away. <laughs> they just kind of drift away. So once you see that, they, they, they self-liberate. So, but as soon as you think, I have to get rid of those expectations, then you, have to, you create a whole new identity. I'm the one who's going to get rid of my expectations. And pretty soon you're tense again. So instead, we just, we just practice opening. Ah, there's my there's the mind that's creating expectations. Oh, it's really painful when I feel that, but I don't once I notice it, it's just like when you notice that you're holding your breath. You don't keep holding it. You take a nice deep breath. Same thing. I notice that I'm holding myself to these impossible expectations. Natural thing is to open your fists. Relax. Oh, thank you so much for your description and, and gratitude is Because yeah. I can connect through the suffering, as you said, like instead of no matter where we're coming from, no matter, you know, what status we have, what job, but really like making it equal to you and to all of who we are here is like we have started. But I'm higher than you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Exactly. Kind of like leave these expectations about people behind and just kind of, which is really hard, honestly. Yeah. So sometimes I guess that is very confusing to be like, but I'm resentful, but no, I can be kind of loving, you know. But I think that just the fact that I'm experiencing that is, it's a good start. It's a very good start, and it's inevitable that that our first way of self-protection uh, is to feel some, sometimes, or the last line of defense is to feel resentful. And, and sometimes that's the best strategy we have to, to protect our individuality at first. But then we, as we come home to ourselves, then we, we, can, we can be more uh, forgiving, more loving, and still protect ourselves. So that's you know part of our process is learning how to wisely protect ourselves um, and, and be uh, 
and fight, but with a loving heart. That's easy to talk about it, another to practice. Thank you so much for your passion and your truth. So you had your hand up, and then you had your hand up before. Or you'd rather let it go for now, or tricky. <laughs> you know, like it's wrong to be sad. And then as you were talking, you realized that was Yes. Just for those who didn't hear or for the tape, uh, when after the meditation she felt sad and then started thinking about that. Why am I sad? And like, it's not okay to be sad. But then she just let herself feel, feel it, let herself feel it, and just felt the, the, I call it the natural happiness and well-being of being conscious. And, and as she said, bija, open. Thank you. So thanks so, uh, so far for your questions, comments. We will alternate today. We'll have a, right now we'll have a half hour or a little less of, of doing some walking practice so you move. And ideally with each step that you take, that you feel your, you feel your body, your mind and your body, and you just connect with your steps, keep orienting yourself to real time. The more you do that, connecting with your steps, just like we started with body breath, the more you do that, the more you will be be awake to being present. And the more you will be able to notice all the ways that you leave, all the ways that you um, lose contact with, with real time. So you'll see what your mind is doing a little bit more. And not only that, but you'll also feel, especially in walking, it's an interesting thing, you will feel the way the personality view operates how it's felt in our body. So for example, something especially people experience when they do walking meditation is when you, for example, when someone walks near you, notice if you stand up a little straighter. Notice if you start feeling self-conscious. You'll feel that as a kind of tension. Notice if you start feeling weird. Oh, I feel, you know, this is, looks, I feel like I'm part of the land of the living dead here. Whatever it is, this is the way personality view, a view of self, um, operates in our mind, and it affects the way that we feel. And again, with all of these things, we want to be kind with it. We want to just know this is just part of it. Try to be entertained by how crazy your mind is, <laughs> uh, just whatever it does. And try to be kind with it, too, because we all have some version of vulnerability and self-consciousness that shows up. And instead of trying to pretend that we're, you know, that we're so well put together, we, 
we let our lens widen and we just feel what insecurity is like. Because anyone who has any view of self is going to, view of self equals insecurity. Why is that? Because a view of self is fragile. It's a view, it's a thought, and it's feeling, and they're always changing. And they change according to who you're with. I think I wrote that in the description. So it tells you that, the, that a self is not an absolute. It's a conditioned thing. And so it's, it's not possible to get it to be solid. And so all of us, our existence is marked by insecurity. So what do you do when you meet somebody, when you meet someone who is vulnerable? You want to embrace them. You don't want to judge them, but we tend to be really hard on ourselves or try to deny that we're feeling insecure and, and end up like one of the president, you know, the... <laughs> I won't say which candidate, but you end up kind of with full of self-view. And then the, this, uh, the next part of the time, I'll talk a little bit about the, a little bit more about the inevitability of different views of self and how they serve a certain function. How they're inevitable, useful, and, uh, but at the same time insecure. So as we walk, notice that all the different manifestations of, of, of ego or self-view. From the littlest self-consciousness to to inflation, to deflation, to whatever it is that your mind is doing. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? But use as your background, as your anchor, just simple, mindful presence. Just walking and know you're walking. And if you feel your steps, you know you're here. And we want to be, want to be here enough to notice. That's it. Just keep coming to this simple contact. So we'll have till 12 o'clock. And then we'll sit again till 12.30, and then we'll have lunch at 12.30. So we'll have a sitting before lunch. So thanks for your practice so far, your being here. And uh, just for the next few minutes, because uh, I want to join you for walking, but for the next few minutes, if someone wants to, to check in with me one-on-one, -on -one, I'll just sit here, sit right here. And, uh, Where are we going to walk? Oh, we're walking either in the hallways or outside on the land. And we'll hit one. I'll, we'll hit one big gong outside. So don't go too far. But we'll, most of the the gongs to bring you back will be in in the building. After the sitting, we'll check in a little bit about what you noticed in the walking. One of the things that I did not say for those of you who had not maybe done walking practice before is that we generally walk to and fro, back and forth, just landing in our steps, landing in our body, uh, orienting ourselves to real time. And uh, the reason we walk to and fro, back and forth, is mostly so you recognize that you're not going anywhere, that the whole point is to arrive in the step you're taking, to keep orienting ourselves uh, to
to present time or to step out of our usual preoccupation with, with aiming to get somewhere, which is often a cause of some kind of tension. And that tension is often the cause of a lot of discursive thinking. And a lot of our discursive thinking is usually about the imagined me moving from the past through the present on our way to someplace else, when the reality of our life is it's always an unfolding present, that not any of us, no one, has ever left the present moment in truth. That there, we're, there's only ever been in any of our lives a here and now. What we call the past was a past here and now. And we only know that by as a memory in, in the present. And what we call the future, there's a, those are future present moments that have not yet occurred. And the only way we know the future is by a thought called future here. So what we realize in our practice is the way, as great Japanese poet, another poet, Ryokan put it, Buddha or wake is your own mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. He says, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So we, hopefully in the course of walking, and you can do, this is portable, you can do this any place, uh, you're, you're recognizing that the point of your practice is realized, is, is always realized in the present moment because you're really not going anywhere. How many thoughts of ourself as somebody who's going? While I'm on this subject, I can't resist. There's a famous story from the, from the, Buddha's, the Buddha's teachings in the, the group of teachings called the Anguttara Nikaya, which are the numbered sutras of the Buddha. And in the Gutra Nikaya, there's a, this story of this, and there's all kinds of magical stories, this, this celestial being who had this tremendous power to be able to walk great distances and had this idea, you know, I have this amazing power, I'm, I want to walk to the end of the universe or the end of the world. And in the course of walking to the end of the world, even though it was a celestial being who, who if you subscribe to that view of reality, the celestial beings have a different lifespan than, than you and me, and they can live a long time. But nevertheless, in the attempt to reach the end of the world by, by walking quickly, that uh, celestial being eventually died and didn't make it. So reborn into the, at the time of the Buddha, comes to the Buddha and says, Lord Buddha, uh, I um, have this power, and, and is it possible to reach the end of the world by going? And the Buddha said, no. It's not possible to reach the end of the world by going. But only those who reach the end of the world become free. What do you do with that? But then he... He didn't stop there. He said, within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and senses, lies the world. 
within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and senses lies the cause of the world that we keep spitting out. Within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and senses lies the end of the world. And within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the path that leads to the end of the world. So it's essentially saying that our mind creates the world, we go out of ourselves and search even though we never really have left here, and then some point we wake up. We wake up out of that, that dream, that idea that I am somebody who's come from the past, passing through the present on my way to the future. I wake up out of that and I reach the end of the world. The end of the world of me making and my making, I making. And I, and I, by cultivating the path of presence, kindness, I, um, I reach, I find the path that leads to the end of the world, which is right here. So this whole, all this going has never brought happiness to anyone until they've essentially become exhausted. One of my teachers said, the purpose of meditation is to exhaust your mind because <laughs> we're busy trying to get somewhere, even with our practice. So in that spirit of, of the way goes nowhere, the end of the world is here, as we, we continue to our, follow our path, which is to reorient ourselves to what is always already here, and that's wakeful presence. You don't have to try to be awake. It's natural to you, aware. But we have to remember. So we cultivate this habit of remembering, of noticing that we're noticing, noticing that we're embodied, noticing that we're breathing, noticing that we're hearing. We use our senses to wake us up. I'll tell you, after the sitting, I'll tell you another story about waking up. Um, it really is waking up out of the idea of ourself to a direct experience. That's actually true. So right now, it's true that you're here, sitting. But you want to feel that and have it not just be theoretical. You want to have that feeling of sitting be one of, of, um, of intention, where you really want to be awake and aware, where you want to have a kind of dignified, upright, relaxed, uh, regal posture. So you say, I own this place. This is my spot. That's not egoic. It's just true. to be, uh, treat this with great care, kindness, uh, kind attention to the eyes closing softly, feeling the touch of the eyelids, lips not taut, just soft, relaxed. 
hands relaxed, touching whatever they're touching. Rear end being supported, loved by the earth element, the hardness. body melting, softening, as I said before, like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun, and letting the idea of our body melt away into the field of sensation. Of course, it is implicit that we have a body, since we'll also notice the movements of our body as we breathe. We continue to let that be a, a support or an anchor for our awareness, knowing that the breathing body is breathing and knowing that some breaths are short and some are long, some rough, some smooth. We will make no effort to alter the breath just notice that we're breathing. And because we, the world is the senses, when sounds become stronger than the breath, we just graciously notice that hearing is occurring here and now. We let the sounds appear and disappear. the sounds fade away and, and then settle back again to, to our body awareness, awareness of breathing. And you will inevitably experience certain body sensations that are more prominent than the breath. The aching or burning or stabbing or itching or tingling. And at that time that sensation is predominant, we let the breath recede and let our attention fully absorbed and experience that sensation, that quality of sensation. If it's burning, we want to know, that, know directly, oh, this is burning. We want to know what happens to that burning sensation. Does it get stronger or vanish, morph into another sensation? attention to these predominant sensations until they fade, less prominent, then we settle again into the sensations of breathing and sitting. Sound, sensation, breath, just this moment. this breath. Again and again, reconnecting with the life of the unfolding present.
inevitably you'll lose contact with this immediate felt sense of body presence and breath, sound, and you'll become absorbed or lost in thoughts. Thoughts may arise and mindfulness may not rise up to notice them. At some point, though, mindfulness will re-arise. You'll realize that you've been absorbed in the imagination. At that moment, we appreciate now that we're awake and aware, clearly comprehending that we're here. And in behalf of staying here a little bit more consistently, we connect our attention with our body, which is always here. Connect our attention with our breath, which our body requires. Connect our attention to our senses. Remind us of our love of being here. Sound, sensation,
there's any strain or tension, falling into sinking mind or dullness, feel free to notice this with open openness, open-heartedness. Then feel free to also refresh yourself and begin again. In real time, everything is, every moment is a new beginning. Always begin again.
hear the sound of the gong. Just be aware of hearing. Letting the sound appear and fade. And when you're ready to open your eyes, be aware of the feeling of opening your eyes. Be aware of seeing. And then be aware of any other movement that you make. Letting everything in this unfolding present be known. Awareness. Stay where you are. just as they are. This is how we step out of our personality view. Anything you notice, you know, working with sensations, sounds, breath, any questions, descriptions. Any wondering of how that relates to self-view. Everybody fully enlightened. Please. slowing down a little. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah, slowing down is a beautiful thing. Yes. Uh, and we understand on when we develop practice and aging practice more intensively that if you slow down a little bit, you'll notice more, like you say. And if you notice more, it becomes more interesting. And if it becomes more interesting, you'll feel more passion and, and, and energy for it. And this is how the practice builds. However, we also have to be sensitive in terms of condition to not create an identity as a slow walker and think that's how I'm supposed to be. And and then find that place where our mind is racing and our body, our nervous system is really rattled and we're forcing ourselves to slow down. So it's something that we want to, to um, have unfold organically, inclining a little bit towards slower, but not turning slow into an identity or a religion so that then we're not always listening to 
the unfolding of things. So I really appreciate you saying it. And I wish everyone knew, could find out. It's like an, an open secret that in some way the walking is where the action is in, in the practice of insight meditation. I've had many, many more meditative insights and that, those kinds of revelations in walking than I have in sitting. But somehow walking gets treated as the, as the break from the sitting or weird or secondhand or um, somehow not as valuable or important. But I'm glad you got that. Did you have your hand up? I, do I, when I have an insight that comes in the form of a thought, do I sit and noodle about whatever that is? Uh, sometimes if there's some, if some kind of revelation comes, and it's, sometimes it comes with a whole torrent of, of different associations and reflections. If that is happening organically, if it's just kind of expressing itself, of course, you, ideally you notice it. You notice that your mind is doing that. You're not completely lost in it. You know. You just take it in, and it's perfectly fine to mindfully reflect and metabolize. Uh, but usually, not in t you don't do, you don't, you don't try to intentionally extend your thoughts about something because always something new is always presenting itself. So you want to be available. But if what comes forth is a lot of thinking, just notice. Oh, my mind is integrating this. It's fine. Please. Yes. When you're fully present for a moment. Everything's alive. Everything's alive, yes. beautiful to take in the creek and the beauty and but then it was so painful I know you're going away I know this scene will change I know I will lose this Yes. Yes, it seems, yeah, <laughs> more painful to have it and lose it to than just be asleep. Yes. <laughs> and. think one has to realize the that there that it's actually a more profound loss to not not feel to be dead to be dead while you're alive because there it is so precious and if you do learn to navigate those moments the very next moment it's available to you again and then the very next moment 
and then it starts showing up even in the middle of your daily life. It stops being associated with being at Spirit Rock standing by the creek. It, that revelation is, you realize, is your natural state, and it follows you nearer than your breath wherever you go. So that's the possibility. But at first, it seems it's, it is a sweet sorrow in a way, the sweet and then sorrowful. I think that's a lot of why we, the essence of, of this path is you could, you could filter all the myriad thousands of teachings and it all comes down to freedom through letting go. Learning how to, how to, as William Blake would say, kiss the joy as it flies. She, I'll do it in the feminine since you were the one who speaks, she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy, but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. If you again and again understand that it's the nature of that experience of Creekside to pass away, then there's less clinging to it. If there's less clinging to it, it makes you more and more available to the joy of letting go that may even be surpass the joy of that initial hit of that scene, the joy of, of just being in harmony with things the way they are. So that's really the heart of this tradition is, is a joy of letting go, of non-clinging that, um, that even surpasses, surpasses the temporary joy of a beautiful scene. So, but at first we have to take on faith or just under a certain intelligence says, oh, well, that's worth aiming for because you certainly can't hold on to the scene at the creek. And I think the more we, ref it's, the more we reflect on that with loved ones, um, everything in our life, the thing that turned the Buddha toward the letting go of the, the identity with you know, we, we include the body in our practice, the identity with the body. That's our number one identity. This is, we think this is me, this is mine, but of course you study it and you see that it has a shelf life. Comes, goes, can't tell it not to get old. Definition of the birth of the body is the leading cause of death of the body. So we, we learn that over and over, and if you study it moment to moment, you stop identifying it with it as much. It stops being as much me. It starts being much more this process being known. Very different than the experience of it is a changing process. The thought about it is my body. Now, relatively speaking, it is your body. It's not my body. But if you look more deeply at, at your so-called body that has a relative, it's relatively yours, if you look at it more closely, you can't find any self in it. It's just happening. This body unfolding, not according to your will or your wish. It's, it's unfolding. So the less cling to the body, the more freedom. Moods, same. Thoughts and images, same. Less clinging, more freedom. Scenes at the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, whatever we cling to, we suffer. Whatever we learn to let go, we feel more free. And then it comes right down to the last clinging is the, the clinging to the view of self. It's the deepest. Um, taste, 
I call it the deepest case of mistaken identity, is the view of self. It's not A view of self is not self. It's marked by the same changing condition as the creek. That's why we suffer so much when suffer so much insecurity because we're trying to hold on to an idea. I'm special. I'm better than. Or I should be better than. That's another real torment. Any of you ever have those? <laughs> so I wanted to just, I, told, I promised you the story before lunch. The, this is my favorite little story uh, from, and it's not my own life, but it's something I read in from Anthony DeMello, and any of you sat with me know I like to tell this. But it's really a story of waking up out of our, our ideas about ourselves to more reality. But this is, this is just more, it's more superficial, but it's fun. Uh, in one of his books, Anthony DeMello talks about a, a time he was watching Spanish TV, and uh, in Spain, and and he heard the story of a guy who knocked on his son's door in the morning and said, Jaime, kind of a Spanish name, Jaime, wake up. It's time to get up. Get up, get up. It's time to go to school. You've got to go to school. Jaime uh, growls back, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to school. And uh, his dad says, well, Jaime, why don't you want to go to school? And he says, it's so dull. I hate school. And the kids tease me. And his father then responds, I'll give you three reasons why you have to go to school. It's your duty. You're 45 years old. And you're the headmaster. Wake up. So we are the headmaster. We've been depriving ourselves of the, the grandeur of your being, your, your innate freedom, and thinking of yourself as the, as, the, um, as the student, as the as the little one. Wake up. Trying to wake up out of our limited views about ourselves. That's the whole point. You're the headmaster. <laughs> and really, when we're caught in a small view, school is dull. And we get teased a lot. We're very insecure. And we, won't li we don't like our life the way it is. So wake up. How far do you have to travel to wake up? Buddha will wake is your own mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. You point your cart north when you want to go south. How will you ever arrive? So thanks for the morning of practice and sharing and we will have now one hour to eat, and I guess 
those of you who did not bring food, maybe Romeo already said this, but is there a deli across the highway you might have to drive? But you have to go to school, so close the exit doors. In order to be the headmaster, you have to show up. So even though you may, as we slow down, you may, you may find that it's a little uncomfortable being present. We use the discomfort to um, to wake up, to keep waking us up. We don't we don't let the discomfort become the cause of planning our escape. Of of then thinking, oh, I'll be happier if this day ends or if I do something else. So I know, having been, a, you know, being a yogi myself, is that my mind, our minds are very clever at, at creating scenarios of ourself in time, thinking that if we get somewhere, we'll be happier. So we try to just notice that today, and, and to the extent that you're willing to close the exit doors, really stay for the day. And uh, and watch your watch what your mind does with that. This is an opportunity for that, and hopefully, an opportunity to do that with good company. So we have an hour for walking. I mean, for eating, and then highly recommend that you do a little walking before you come in for the afternoon, just to keep your energy up. To and fro, or just take a walk. Feel free during lunch. Uh, I think Romy said there's a residential retreat going on up the hill. Did she say that? So please don't go past the gate. You can absorb the vibes from up there. It's quite nice. Um, but feel free to walk anywhere else on the property. But uh, stay close enough to we will reconnect again at five minutes to two. This afternoon, we'll explore. Uh, we. We explored a little bit in, in, with immediacy the mindfulness of the body and the sen how sensations are changing, and I talked about it. Of course, it's a lifelong thing to experience. In addition to that, in the afternoon, we'll talk about how, how the quality of sensations that you're experiencing day in and day out, the quality of sensations and the quality that every experience you have at any of your senses produces feeling. Uh, it, it's a quality of feeling that's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant, unpleasant. We're having this every moment. And depending on how, our, how we react to those little feeling tones determines where our mind goes. And where our mind goes determines how much we then enter into that world of the imagined, imagined view of ourselves. So it's, it comes down to simple experience to and how we react to it that sends us into our the world of our imagination and gives us that sense that we uh, exist apart from from everything and everyone it gives us that sense of, of sometimes isolation sometimes feeling great sometimes not so how we can explore how the self view self idea gets created moment to moment and we can in our own way through our practice, cut the chain that usually leads from one thing to the next, and before you know it, we're, we're incarnated in a kind of dreamscape of our own mind and missing the, the experience of the stream. We're missing reality. It's quite amazing. See, to me, I don't know anything more amazing 
than all of us being here together. That, if we actually experience it, is enough. But our mind is telling us because of our chronic reactivity that mm, not enough. Something has to change. I need to change. The scene needs to change. Spirit Rock needs to change. The teacher needs to change. Everything. We're always reacting to things. So to be able to notice our mind doing that and have it become the cause of more freedom, that's what we want. You look confused. Does that not make any sense? To how, say more about it's hard to practice in day-to-day -day life. We just need to notice them. You don't have to let them go. Letting go happens naturally when we see things the way they are. If you're not able to let go, you're not noticing the level of clinging. You're not noticing clinging. You're, you're identified as a clinger instead of noticing that you're clinging. So if, once you notice that you're holding on to a view, it, like I said before, it's almost like noticing that you're holding your breath. You just start. It just, in the intelligence of our nature, when we see something really clearly, when the light goes on in that room that's been dark, we stop stumbling around so much. We really, we're able to navigate more freely. So it's, it really is about, about the, the having some continuity of noticing what your mind is doing moment by moment. Noticing how you're creating, um, how the mind is creating a sense of, of contentiousness with reality or clinging to something. But yet, once you notice that, then things start to open up in real time. I mean, you can tell me all that. There's something that registers every place that you get stuck. But whether you're actually catching it as it's happening in real time, that's where mindfulness comes in. That's where kindness comes in. And that's what we want to do. So I'd love to hear, what, you know, if you're willing to say in front of the room later, what an example of where clinging shows up in your life so that it doesn't sound so theoretical. I'd love to, love to speak with you. Anyway, thanks for the morning. Enjoy your lunch. Use eating as the same, same process of orienting yourself to real time. Notice your bites, your chewing, your swallowing. Your feel the food, whatever. Anyway, thanks for your practice. See you at five minutes to two. Appreciate everyone staying with the the day. The process of waking up out of our out of our preoccupation with ourself is sometimes called uh, going against the stream. 
because the stream of our, our mental habits, our view of ourselves, is of, of the, the central character being someone who is dissatisfied, not okay, who's trying to figure out how to become okay, and then continuing to move, to, to go, out of love for ourselves, <clears throat> trying to desperately to find relief. Does that seem to describe? So this is a process that, that everyone becomes engaged in, but it's often driven by a by a mistaken view that uh, that something's wrong. That something's wrong with me. And that mistaken view is driven by chronic reactions that we have to our moment-to-moment experience. That those chronic reactions of grasping and condemning, liking, disliking, that harden into what we call clinging and attachment or condemning and its full manifestation is, is anger, rage. And then that rage or anger or that grasping, grasping gets projected onto objects, things that we want more of or want to keep. Our aversion, our reaction of not liking gets projected onto people, situations, politicians, and and then once our mind attaches itself to an object, that central character, the central character called me, is in is in pursuit of either having more or getting rid of what we don't like. <clears throat> and then because the object of desire, in case of uh, being able to stand by that stream again, I'm so appreciative that you brought up that example, or to uh, consummate a relationship or consummate the end of a relationship <laughs> on the reverse side. Maybe consummate's not the best word for... <laughs> but the relationship, the place, the thing... The person, the, the ideal idea of myself becomes the secret to happiness. And as soon as something other than what's already always here becomes the secret to happiness, our mind and body go into what I call a state of suspended happiness, a state of waiting, a state of hoping, a state of expecting, a state of, uh, of expectation. And that state is a state of distress. It's a state of tension. It says, I can't be happy now. So it turns the present moment, the only moment that we have, into a place that we're passing through on our way to getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want. This the Buddha called um, the cause of suffering. The primary cause of our distress is, and it all starts with little reactions 
to pleasant, unpleasant, or reactions to things that are neither pleasant or unpleasant, that don't hold our attention enough. And then we space out. And the pleasant things we want more of, the unpleasant things we want to get rid of. So very often, just to get come back to you today, very often, after a morning of practice, even though there may have been moments of some understanding or some moments of quiet, after a few hours, you are you have come back to your body and to your mind that you haven't paid so close attention to in the course of your daily life. You've neglected it in a certain way, very innocently. There's nobody to blame here. But when we come back into our body and come back and start experiencing our mind, insight at the beginning, as one of my teachers said, is often bad news. Our body is tense. Our mind is busy. We feel a lot of restlessness, agitation, a lot of aversion, a lot of grasping, a lot of doubt. So that all this little cocktail makes us feel like, I can't be happy here and now. So the tendency would be to plan your escape. And to not want to come back after lunch. <laughs> so the, that's why I say, I'm really happy that you came back. <laughs> and you end it. It really is a, the beginning, really. It can be the beginning of a kind of freedom to have unpleasant experiences. You talked about it earlier. Having unpleasant experiences, just let yourself feel the unpleasantness. Now, it seems like such a novel idea, but isn't it true that unpleasant experiences are at least a, almost 50% of our life? Pleasant feeling experiences are also a big part of our life. If we were able to accommodate the unpleasant experiences, we would see they're only part of the time. And they come and they go. But what turns them into a torment, what turns them into uh, this insatiable need to get somewhere else, is our inability to be with them. And then our, our life ends up being a constant running from silence, running from ourselves. And in that, that running only takes place in our mind, as I talked about before. We really don't ever go anywhere. But our mind says, I can't be happy here. I can't find relief right where I am. I have to get out of this place. If it's the last thing I ever did, you know that song? <laughs> We gotta get out of this place. <laughs> if it's the last thing we ever do. And this is a trick that our mind plays. That and within this little trick, our identity is formed of the one existing in time, the imagined me. When in reality there's just this moment and whatever we're experiencing. And the difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says. We want to begin to believe the bird, what's actually happening right now. Now, at whatever point we become aware, it may be, we may become aware at that moment where I, I notice, oh, I have planned my escape to such detail, I'm going to tell them that something big has come up, 
and <laughs> and or I'm uh, you know I'm, I, my back is my disc is bulging and it doesn't look like it's okay to be on your back and they don't really allow drugs here and you know <laughs> we they do and <laughs> but you can see how our mind will create this whole drama and nothing happened except we incarnated in that little dream so what we do in the span of our medita- in the in our meditation practice we don't make any of that wrong. We don't try to, We don't have to delete any of that. We don't have to suppress it. We don't have to be any different than the way we are. We simply have to begin to wake up to the way we create ourselves and our drama, moment by moment, and try to have a sense of humor about it. So when the Buddha talked about the reactions to liking and disliking, to pleasant and unpleasant, in other words, of re- liking and disliking, and how that unnoticed hardens into this constant state of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That's what he called the second noble truth. The chronic desire for things to be other than the way they are. When he talked about that, he talked about two kind, basically two, three main things. The first one, it expresses itself as craving which is craving or aversion. It's the same thing. Craving for things to be different. Craving for pleasure or the avoidance of pain. Craving for, um, for the, the avoidance of pain would be craving for everything to stop. So that's, and the extreme version of the craving for what's sometimes called craving for non-becoming, if you want it to stop, it's actually the suicidal impulse. It's another form of craving. But most often in our culture, what we're, what we're taught to do and fed is to form our identity around craving for pleasure, associating our, our happiness with being able to satisfy some kind of hunger, get what we want, get the person, get the job, get the place, get the bank account, get the whatever it is, get the experience, the vacation, the... the um, the religion, whatever it is, that w- that will finally make us okay. So craving for sense pleasures, craving for non-becoming or having everything sh- stop, and the third one, the Buddha called craving for becoming, creating an image, a felt sense of moving in time toward toward the time that I'll be okay or great and then measuring ourselves in that process of good, better, best, you know, whether I'm succeeding or not. That trance of mind, although it's so human and so innocent, it prevents us from, from experiencing a sense of happiness and well-being right where we are, just as we are. So the basic, the teachings are, of course, it is in our nature to, to evolve, to create, to become, to become um, more wise, more free. There's just an impulse for freedom, impulse to express ourselves creatively. But often we postpone being well and free. We associate 
being able to be well and free with succeeding in all of those things as, as opposed to what I like to call first things first. Find the natural happiness. Find freedom first. Make freedom the hub around which you do your life where, where no moment, where you don't have to postpone it for one moment. Find that fundamental sense of okayness. Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, called it basic goodness. Just come back to yourself. Know that through and through that you are intrinsically, primordially free, open, whole. And then you'll notice that out of that comes 200% more creativity, more functionality, more skill, skillfulness in whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think, everything has more clarity. The essence of what you realize, again, this is a, just using different language, but the essence of what you realize is that you are openness and freedom itself. And the, the nature of that is clear, and the expression of that is love and intelligence. And you don't have to lift out of this moment to discover that. Even though paradoxically, you had to come to Spirit Rock maybe for somebody to point that out to you. So it's not without some going, but it's really going to the extent that somebody reminds you to stop going, to stay where you are. But once you're here, it's in the nature to grow, to create, to, but you don't want to postpone anymore. And you want to do every, everything, let everything be the reminder of your love of being right here where you are. And where you, what you find here is, is your, the natural expression of your individuality. But what you don't find here in, in real time is that that imaginary version of yourself. Well, you'll see the imaginary version of yourself going through your mind, but you'll stop believing it, that that one who's not okay or any version of yourself, you, you'll know that from real, from truth, from ex immediate experience, that you're not, you're not definable by a thought. That not one person here, that every person here is so unique and such a creative and beautiful expression of life that any of these ideas that we have about ourselves, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, I'm too this, I'm too that, all those are insults and they don't really speak to anybody who truly exists. They speak to some kind of idealized version that doesn't, or in reaction to some idealized version that's completely distorted anyway and impossible because you've watched too many movies. <laughs> you've turned on You've turned on our news media and thought that the whole key to happiness is being the master of the universe uh, billionaire. Or you've, you've whatever, whatever other idea, you've read magazines and you see all these toothpick bodies and you, or you see people only a certain shade or color. It's madness. But when we start to internalize our have an internal locus of value that's more about direct experience, more about awareness of 
our experience here, as opposed to an idea of our experience. We're just actually here with ourselves. Wow, I'm cool. You're cool. We're cool. We're amazing. I'm amazing. Not in an egoic sense. It's just like, wow, just to be even human, to see and to hear and to smell and to taste, to feel and to be able to communicate and understand each other. Wow. And then to see that the, our, see things that are different about us based on how each person came to be here through all these non-personal causes, through no fault of your own, how every single person is a collaboration of life. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like every one of my breaths, I'm collaborating with all of life. Every one of my thoughts is connected to something, some conditioning. Every shade of my skin is made up of all the different influences and strains. You know, I start to be kind of awed by myself and you. And that's how, that's how in our own small way, we start ending war. We realize that not one person or one aspect of one person exists independently from everyone. All at all times, we're affecting each other. How can we quarrel from that vantage point? We just start, we start our constitution changing. But it all starts with our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant or unpleasant experience. You see how it all starts? in our reaction, liking, disliking, becoming. But from beginningless time, we've been reacting to, our mind has been reacting to the pleasant by grabbing, unpleasant by aversion, neither pleasant or unpleasant by spacing out, by falling into delusion and confusion. So what we're trying to do is start to wake up, oh, pleasant, this is really pleasant, and feeling it. And then noticing, oh, the pleasant comes and goes. Can't cling to it, but I want to certainly let myself experience it because it gladdens my heart. It makes me feel alive. The unpleasant, let me feel it. It's very unpleasant, but it comes and goes. I don't need to be afraid of it. I don't need to run from this. And the neutral, whoa, let me feel that. I always thought that I had to have stimulation had to things had to be stimulating but actually when they're neither pleasant or unpleasant there's a quality of peace and if i stay with that a little bit more i settle into this kind of sublime what's sometimes described as sublime equanimity balance kind of a mountain like peace calm I never left, and I don't have to leave here to find calm. Isn't it, the, isn't it the hidden aim when we get to the end of the rainbow? When I get what I want, I want to go, ah, oh, peace. Done is what needed to be done. So the practice asks us to look at that habit of mind that thinks that we have to wait to be ah, and instead be ah, moment by moment. Don't postpone. 
So in order to be able to do ah moment by moment, we have to notice the way we create ourselves in time, how we create a sense of somebody who's coming from the past, passing through the present on our way to the future. That's just a story. You want to notice that. So comedians have noticed our tendency to do this forever. They, comedians are brilliant. And they have a funny way of talking about how we construct time in our mind. Example that I share, almost every time I do a retreat, from Larry Miller. You ever hear of Larry Miller? This particular passage was attributed to George Carlin, but it was a guy named Larry Miller. And this is his whole description of our, the way our mind works around aging. Do you realize the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to, we had to, we had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What changed? You become 21, you turn 30, you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50, and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. You've built up so much speed that you hit 70. After that, it's a day-by-day -day thing. You hit Wednesday. <laughs> you get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, turn 4.30, you reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. <laughs> May we all make it to a healthy hundred and a half. So this is the, the way our mind works. Then uh, this was an, truly a, a George Carlin passage, which I often share in accompaniment with Larry Miller, where he he's trying to find a way for us to stop spinning out like this. And so he says that the life cycle is all backwards. He says the most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time. What do you get at the end of it? A death. What's that, a bonus? I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. 
then live in an old age home, get kicked out when you're too young, you get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. <laughs> you do drugs, alcohol, you party, you get ready for high school. You go to grade school, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. <laughs> Central heating room service on tap <laughs> and you finish off as an orgasm <laughs> so the dharma asks us to to start with the orgasm <laughs> and stay there and, uh, and then to enjoy that process of becoming and and finding some some humor in the turning 30 or becoming or hitting 70 or whatever and see that it's just a game that our mind plays. It's just Sakaya Ditti. It's just self-view. And a view of self is not self, really. It's just a, when I say it's not self, it's not real, it's not substantial. But yet it's something that's an inevitable part of every one of our minds is that we think of ourselves as this way and that. <laughs> Often in related, related to where we've been, where we're going, what we're becoming. Uh, often in relationship to, um, to liking and disliking. And I'll elaborate on that when we get more into mental states. Um, even though I, I gave you a little sneak preview on what happens when we like and dislike and space out as we we end up in the, maybe we'll include this in the instructions right now, but you end up in certain mental states called the hindrances, mental states that actually confuse us they, um, when they're unnoticed, and they lead us to feel like we can't be happy. One is the wanting mind. Second one is the aversive mind, liking, not liking, irritation, uh, ill will, anger, frustration, or clinging, craving. Um, these are a desire and aversion. The third one is called restlessness and agitation. And often comes with thoughts of regret, things that you've said or done that were not so helpful. So lots of uh, guilt, remorse, and attempt to somehow heal the past when it's and not realizing that it's um, the past is gone and that we're left with feelings right now and we we learn how to accommodate them. Often restlessness and agitation is associated with thoughts of worry too about what's next. So we've got desire, aversion, restlessness. We've got the effect of both all three of these, uh, which is the sense of exhaustion, sloth and torpor dullness of mind and then the culmination of a lot of attempting to find relief in things that don't offer it we start to feel doubt and then that doubt enlarges into a doubt about ourselves doubt about what we're doing doubt about 
uncertainty in our mind, and we just start feeling a lot of uncertainty. So that's, and all of that colors our perception, says, oh, I can't, can't find relief now. What we do in our practice is we notice, oh, this is desire, a wanting. This is aversion. This is restlessness. Ah, this is doubt. And so that very thing that was so tormenting and so confusing becomes the cause of our awakening. Oh, doubt. I can be with doubt. Doubt feels like this. Doubt changes. I can feel desire and not believe that it's, it's going to, that I have to have something to be happy. I can just notice desire as desire. I can feel irritation and ill will, and I can notice my mind projecting my unhappiness onto somebody else or someone else. And I can notice, oh, this is aversion, and see that aversion is a changing condition, like the weather. So I want to be able to notice these. Otherwise, my life gets, uh, my whole identity gets, gets um, connected to these feelings, and then I don't feel like I'm okay. So we want to notice these. So that's what we'll include in our practice right now. We'll include pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant, We'll also, I'll just drop in these different hindrances. Um, they're sometimes called the manure of Bodhi, the fertilizer of our enlightenment, because they're so much part of our practice. Any questions about that before we sit, about the, the basic mental states, hindrances, working with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Yeah, great question, and in some ways you're jumping the, done, the gun on the instructions. The, the next part of the instructions after this will be working with emotions and working with thoughts and images, you know, the, the top tunes that our mind plays, some of, and how to actually work with them and not just get through them, but actually see that they're just little empty bubbles. Like, where are they now? What you want, what the all we can do is wake up to what we're, our mind is doing in any moment. And you'll see that sometimes you have certain thoughts, certain, as you call them, negative thoughts. And not only do those thoughts float through our minds like clouds, but they leave also, they also have a physiological and emotional effect. We feel them through the body. So you have a negative thought about yourself, you'll feel yourself contract. So we want to be able to notice that process and see that none of that is, is really, none of that is me. None of that is mine. None of that defines me. It's all changing conditions. But first and foremost, we have to be able to notice that we're doing that and noticing that that's happening and experience it. The less sticky those thoughts and feelings become, the more we're able to notice them. They lose their, we're not, we don't get as, we're not as identified with them. We're not caught in them as much. We go, we start to know the top tunes. We know, oh, there's the there's that same frequent visitor. 
there's the same feeling that just keep, that seems to come with that. And then the less sticky those become, they, they just become part of the part of the creative display of our mind. And often we'll get some kind of understanding how, how we, without thinking about it, without reflecting on it, we just get it, because we're just so close to that experience, we see, oh, that's the way my mom talked to me. Or that's the, that's because I've been comparing myself to some ideal or something. But now I just see that for what it is. It's just a habit of mind. It's no longer defines me. So, the, so our relation, it's not about getting rid of those things. It's not about getting through them. It's about seeing, it's about altering our relationship to them. So if they show up, fine. If they don't show up, fine. But we then we don't have to wait to get rid of them to be happy. Because uh, that could take lifetimes. <laughs> Any other questions about the hindrances I just briefly spoke about or pleasant, unpleasant? Okay, let's practice with it. Okay, now forget everything I said up to this point. And just to find a place of balance and ease, raise your arms up in the air. And just, just stretch a little bit and then shift a little bit. Lean a little to the right, lean a little to the left. If you're really just feeling this, you're not being somebody. You're just doing it. <laughs> the happiest we are is when we're not busy thinking about ourselves. <laughs> okay. Now, once you find, let your arms drop. And maybe you feel a little bit energy in your body. Now from this, from your hands being down or your at your sides or wherever they're resting, you can just shift from side to side or front to back till you find a center point where sitting upright is most effortless. And let your eyes close softly, feeling the touch of your eyelids. Notice how just closing the eyes, just for one moment, our attention beginning to open to the internal experience of ourselves. How there's a, instantaneously the beginning of a stilling, a quieting. Or you could say that you are recognizing the natural stillness of your nature. And you'll naturally be called to the movements that your body makes when it breathes. And just let these feelings of the breath emerge into the stillness and then fade away breath by breath. Remember this mindfulness of breathing means that we are simply accompanying our body's natural breath with our
kind attention. There's no need for any effort to breathe. We just let our body breathe itself. We see that breathing is a selfless process. This is one of the ways that we cut through our identity view. Body is breathing, no one is breathing. arise and are known but no one who hears all the sounds and sensations breath appear and disappear by themselves Time to time, certain sensations will become prominent, also coming selflessly, unbidden. And they will come accompanied with a valence, a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or pleasant. From time to time, we want to highlight, if it's a sensation, just check in. Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Neither pleasant or unpleasant. If a sound appears, just check in. Is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant? Sometimes it'll be awareness of the whole sitting body. A general field of sensations. And you ask yourself, is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant? And if it's pleasant, we want to just feel that pleasantness unpleasant to allow the unpleasantness. If it's neutral or neither pleasant or unpleasant, feel that. The same goes for any of the common hindrances. Desire arises, feel it in the body. Notice if that feeling of desire is pleasant or unpleasant. Same with aversion, restlessness, dullness. We notice it. Same with doubt. And with all experiences, we notice that they are changing. And because they are changing, they cannot be, they cannot define us. They are not self. We let everything come and go by itself great natural openness of awareness. Just this moment, just this breath or whatever calls our attention.
سلام As a primary support, sinking into the experience of the breath, sticking to it and spreading out all around it, not missing any part of the in-breath or the out-breath. by breath, moment by moment. right now what are you aware of is it pleasant or unpleasant neither pleasant or unpleasant and how are you relating to it with openness with resistance with grasping 
Just this moment. space for what I'm experiencing right now.
things arise and are known. Sensations are known. No me, no you, no self at all, just what there is. Experiences being known.
since the realization of the teachings are more important than the intellectual understanding, uh, probably the time I can be most useful is in hearing about how you're experiencing the teachings, how you're realizing them, what, what you're noticing in your sitting or in the walking. And so I'm curious, after this last sitting, what did you notice or what did you not notice? Uh, are there any questions, concerns, descriptions, comments? Uh, again, if you might have some comment or question uh, that might be of some benefit to someone else. So what did you notice? Is it a good nap or please? Wait, wait, wait. Aware of the pleasant moment? When I saw that? Yes. Yes, but but why would you go back to something else if that's what's happening? Oh, that's okay. If you notice you're thinking that you're feeling good, that's also part of your experience. Oh, okay. So when you say back to the present, what did you mean by I went back to the present? Yes. Great. Those, that, those are all good little triggers to help you stay awake are useful. And it is really common that when we start to experience the neutral without a lot of energy, if we don't have a lot of uh, vital energy, brightness of energy, we'll start to incline towards sleepy, so that's, or we'll just space out. So that's a very common theme, and, and I think you do the right thing at first. If you start to have sleepiness, it means you're inclining toward dullness or dreaminess. Then you do want to either stand up or take a very precise posture. Just do what you did. And standing by the window is it's a little more extreme, but it's fine. In fact, I was thinking, if anybody's near a window, if you wouldn't mind cracking a window right now. I think it's a little warm and stuffy in here. Thanks for reminding me of that. Just a little bit, just enough to get some cross air. So that it's it takes, you know, in a day long, you've heard me say this before, but in a day of practice that really we've had three sittings and one walking or two, we've had just one. There's not a... There isn't enough continuity of awareness to build up the momentum of, of mental energy. That what we'll notice first is you the benefit of being here in the quiet is you you'll get you'll get some tranquility. But you your vital energy will not be strong enough to hold that tranquility, and so you'll you'll start inclining toward dullness. We always talk about it, Spirit Rocket looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> and, you know, in fact, when our vital energy is really low and we have an intense sloth and torpor, uh, we don't even have the awareness to be able to notice that we're dull. Um, 
but ideally, the moment you do become aware that you're dull, I did notice a lot of people drifting to to take a more precise posture, to oh, perhaps even practice with the eyes open, or stand up. Just that little extra energy, which you did beautifully, this little en extra energy to hold your body up will balance the tranquility and um, keep you awake. And once you notice that there's pleasantness, and even if you notice that you're thinking about it being pleasant, those, are all, those can all be moments of mindfulness. There's no present to get back to. That is the present. So, sounds good. What else? Grateful for knee pain in the midst of sloth and torpor. No, 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 no. It's you know, it's all through the teachings that pain tends to be one of those things that that rivets our attention if we can use it as an object, and it with that comes a lot of energy. So it's of course it's not meant to be a torture test, but to be able to have an equal inclusion of of dullness as something to notice and of knee pain to notice. And you may notice that if you, if you are attending to knee pain, that, that, um, that something about that mixture of attention and knee pain brings a lot of life, a lot of energy. But we also want to, with that attention, also comes some in more intelligence. And we can see then, do I need to be moving? Or um, we just know that it may not be, it's not necessarily doesn't mean you just stay with that experience. Stay with it for a while, and you may need to straighten your knee or change your posture or something, and all of that you want to be part of the unfolding of your practice. It's also a very useful, so much of our, of our identity, just getting back to the topic of the day, is wrapped around our relationship to that pain. You say, I'm having a knee pain. We construct an identity of somebody who's having a knee pain. In real time, there's nobody having knee pain. There's knee pain being known. But this, the quick, ver the quick. I want you to really stay with this for a minute. Right in that moment, when we say I'm having a knee pain, that's part of our conventional language. If we were to talk to somebody about it, we'd say we don't say knee pain being known. Say I'm, I had my knee hurt. But if we take that, if we don't understand that as just a social value and as a kind of useful designation, a useful way to describe something, if we take it to be absolute, we start believing that there's somebody who's having a knee pain. And that's that little moment of I'm having a knee pain is a moment of sakaya ditti, a moment of self-view, a moment of... of uh, of appropriating that knee pain into the view of myself. And if I have knee pain, I have problems. If I have problems, I need to fix them. And then it becomes the drama of our life, all in the span of a few moments. We've incarnated, we're living, we have to live that life of trying to figure out what to do about the knee pain. We've resolved the knee pain. That lifetime ends. Where, who am I now? <laughs> so we can, we can notice how that happens. Really, 
all the while, nobody had knee pain. It's just knee pain was known. But if we're going to talk about it with each other, we're going to describe it in terms of self and other. I had knee pain. You didn't have knee pain. That's conventional reality. But ultimately, the way we look at it meditatively is we see that it's, it was just a happening, not personal at all, just conditions. Does this make sense, what I'm saying, or no? Anybody's confused, just please raise your hand. Or All of this becomes much more clear as we come closer and closer to how we experience things moment to moment. We start to just cut through that whole story of, of knee pain and experience it just as it is. That's why I said no me, no you, no self at all, just what there is. Anybody else notice anything during this sitting? Everything's really heavy. Now, sometimes heaviness is a... Uh, there, there are many perceptual shifts of our body when we quiet, when we sit still. And there are many effects to the coming together of our mind and body. We call that coming together, that unifying of mind and body. We call that... Um, um, there's many words for it, but it's... With it comes different qualities of mind. Some, sometimes it's called rapture. Sometimes there's a, a sense of comfort. Rapture, though, comes in the form of a, a changing feeling of our whole energetic system. So sometimes it's light, like a breeze. Other times it's intensely heavy. Other times it feels like a body is rocking or shaking. Sometimes like hair is standing on end. Sometimes like, like bugs crawling all over the body. All of these different energetic effects of our mind and body coming together. So th this kind of phenomena, this heaviness, sometimes it's connected to dullness, but sometimes it's just because we're, our body and mind have come together and we'll get either intense heavy or intensely light. Or the c sense of our body completely melting away and not feeling any separation between itself. Bodies often disappear in terms of our perception. So it's fine. What, how did you work with that when you noticed it? You started what, thinking? Yeah, ideally you want to just notice, oh, this is what heaviness is like. And try to try to take it, come really close to that feeling of heaviness, and feel how it manifests in your body. And so you just use that. On the other hand, if if in doing that you keep sinking, then you you may want to do what I said before in terms of sloth and torpor. But that sounds fine. You had your. Hand. Good point. Generally, to she talked about the stamina, and she may be her her focus waning. Some of that's just uh, just we're training, and when we're not trained to have continuity of awareness, it does wane. It's very, it's very, um, it's like disparate strings. 
that are not, they haven't woven together in a rope. They're, it's just not very strong. And so they, the, the mindfulness, the concentration breaks apart really easily. And you, you do it more, have more moments of, of noticing, it starts becoming much more woven, much more strong. And so it's just regular practice. How often do you practice? So my recommendation is, is that you do it 24 hours daily. You do it all day long. Wherever you can remember that you, you bring that mindful attention to what you're doing when you're doing it. And that you just start to intensify, make it the hub around which you do everything in your life. And then have the sitting time be a, a, special, a special, more formal period, but have it informally going all the time. Really, it's not because it, we can't. I always joke, it, we we can't expect a little sitting time. Just like trickle down economics doesn't work so well, <laughs> trickle down meditation doesn't work so well. It, it needs to be spread out. It needs to be from the from the ground up, <laughs> and so it's it's really just lawful that of course you would it would wane. Also, our Focus wanes as we become a little more tired. And in the afternoon, our energy wanes. And when our energy wanes, our uh, mental strength wanes. And when our mental strength wanes, we tend to just drift off a lot. So part of it could be just the time of the day. And part of it may be just not a lot of continuity of practice. So, but in any case, it's not personal. It may, it may be individual. You may have your individual version, but it's really just about conditions. What is the condition of this mind and body? Is it, have I built, has there been built up in this mind-body process a lot of moments of mindfulness and concentration? You do that more and you'll notice, you're alive. Don't do it much, you'll have a lot of moments of dullness. So, so it doesn't have to become part of an identity. It's just part of, just understanding the condition. What leads to more energy? What leads to less energy? Please. Interplay of the, of the narrative of the hindrances, yes. So in other words, you were having a multiple hindrance attack. We don't want to think through the hindrances. No, not intentionally. But sometimes with the hindrances will come little narratives and cross-narratives, but we want to just treat that as another object like the weather. Yeah, so thank you for noticing, and I'm glad. And that's partly why we use the, the, other, the physical senses. They wake us up to a sense of immediacy, and they wake us up to realize, wow, I was just... In, I was just absorbed in a, a world of narrative, and I didn't even know it. I was dreaming, basically. Please.
no doubt. Yeah, thank you for the question. How can you practice deriving wisdom from our body? Well, it reminds me of the, of the Buddha's first teaching that he gave to people who wanted to practice meditation. To the first teaching that he gave as part of the, the teaching, remember, the, the Buddha's main recommendation to be able to work with the self-view and to see through it, to, to see through our, our illusions and our confusion about who and what we are, is to meditate. And if you wanted to meditate, the first thing you need to meditate on, the first, what's called the first foundation of mindfulness, it's, part of, it's called the first satipatthana, based on a sutra, you can all look this up if you're interested, you'll learn a lot from this, a sutra called the Maha Satipatthana Sutra, which is the sutra on the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. And we've actually been covering them today, even though I wasn't as explicit about it. The first foundation of mindfulness is what? Mindfulness, here's the Buddha saying to us, he's and for the purpose of our being together, we're all monks today or nuns. Monks can be female or male. But we have that designation of nuns and monks. But monks are really, in the Korean tradition, uh, the, the nuns call themselves monks. I like that. But monks, so monks need to learn to call themselves nuns, and then we have a better world. <laughs> you can tell I went to the... the the march yesterday. <laughs> I'm a feminist. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so getting back to, um, to this first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha said, Oh monks, there is one thing, O oh monks, that leads to a um, calm abiding to focus to a pleasant dwelling in this very life to the, through the abandonment of the taints of the confusions of mind, the torments of the mind, the, the cause of seeing through the self-illusion. What is that one thing that leads to all these things, to the sure heart's relief? It is mindfulness directed to the body. As the body is calm, mind is calm, the taints are abandoned, the supreme knowledge arises. What is that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. That's the, the heart of the practice. It's an in-the-body practice, this seeing through the self-illusion. So it is the basis for having the conditions that lead to stillness, to having our mind and body come together, that leads to stillness. It leads to tranquility. Now, the contrast to that is that if you cannot be still, if you cannot be tranquil, 
if you're constantly ruminating about things you've said or done, things you didn't say or didn't do, if your mind is tormented by regret, very difficult to have any kind of harmony of mind and body, very difficult to have stillness. So this is why the foundation, even of mindfulness directed to the body, or the, the practice and training of meditation, the foundation is to develop in your life a strong commitment to non-harming. So there's nothing you regret. So you don't cause yourself or anyone else harm to the extent that you can keep from doing that. So why in every wisdom tradition, conduct, ethics, morality, is the, it's the secret. It's the secret um, teaching in a way. If, uh, if, you can, if you can have your mind in the same location in your body, you're going to tune into what you say and what you think and what you do. You're going to more likely be able to act in a way that's non-harming if you're in the same neighborhood as your body. And as you act, as you think, as you speak, your body has wisdom. It will tell you if you're about to say something that is unwise, unkind. There are certain people, I can't, you know, it's like the whole body of our body politic. It's made up of disembodied people who can lie with impunity, who are so caught up in trying to, trying to secure some kind of advantage, can't, don't even listen to the impact on oneself. And of course, if you don't listen to the impact on oneself, you don't realize the impact on other people. This is what it is, our body and our sensitivity to our body, our sensitivity that our body provides us, a, that guru that our body is that lets us know, you, you know, you're, this, is, this is not so healthy or helpful. This is really self-driven. This isn't for the benefit of whoever I'm speaking to. This is to gain an advantage. I'm more committed to myself than I am to truth and, and well-being. You know? And so if we, if we were really listening, we could feel all that. If we're not listening, we tend to live in that kind of mental universe that's always trying to find an advantage. It's always struggling to become better, to, get to, to um, be the best. And that often keeps us in a very narrow perspective. It doesn't allow us to actually know how deeply connected we are with one another. So body is very important to get us in the neighborhood and get us in the neighborhood of our body, speech, and mind, how we act. And once we're in the neighborhood, not only are we more aware of what we think and about to say or say and, or what we have said, but then we start to feel the effects of having our mind and body together. And it begins this process of um, becoming, you know, we have it superficially, we have this idea, I have a body, right? Now the sense of a body, this is, and the reason I'm describing it this way today is because this is, the topic is self-view, view of ourselves. Part of what reinforces the, the body as myself is that we see it from a distance. We experience it from a distance. We experience it as a thing, as an object. 
But as we come closer to the experience of body, we actually don't experience body. We experience sensation. We experience, we experience streaming, stabbing, burning, itching, tingling, squeezing. What else? Cool, warm, hot, uh, vibrating, pulsing, whatever. Heaviness, lightness. And these sensations are always in a state of flux. So if we look deeply enough at it, and of course, we, if you put this body under a microphone, mi not a microphone, <laughs> under a microscope, you wouldn't find anything. You'd find space. Nothing there that exists independently from everything else. You'd find no self in it, no body in it. And that the body, this perception of body, comes from the proximity of observation, from a distance, from very superficial, in other words. Come closer to it, and it's whoo, it's wild. Just like if you were to put your body under a microscope. So not only are we more sensitive to what the actual experience of body is, we also become more, what I call, emotionally articulate. We notice that with that interaction I started to speak about between thoughts that that are arising, there's always a physical corollary in most cases, not always, most cases, there's a physical corollary to any thought that we're having. There's a physical corollary to pleasant thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, even to neutral thoughts, there's a physical corollary. There's, we can think the name of somebody in our life, especially someone who we have a contentious relationship with. Now, I want you to just for the sake of this experiment, I want you to bring someone to mind who it, traditionally we would call, in the teachings they call the, the difficult person, otherwise known as the enemy. Bring them to mind and notice, how you've, notice what happens to you when you think of that person. And then just hover a little bit with the felt experience of the impact of that. God, the room got so <laughs> depressed. <laughs> There is a physical corollary. There's a tightening. There's a pressure. And then if we hover with that experience of what arises with the thought of that person, we begin to learn the language of emotion. We learn to not just feel it, but actually know what we're feeling. There's a it's as though we don't even have a language for it until we really start to feel it. And in what emerges naturally out of being intimate with a feeling, let's say, of contraction in the chest is we almost intuitively know that, oh, this is afraid. I'm afraid of this person. I feel unsafe. Or I'm really angry at this person. I feel so hurt. But in order for us to get into the neighborhood to be able to discover what that, that complex of feeling is, we first have to feel it. And we are terrible at feeling our feelings. We're wonderful at thinking about them. <laughs> and thinking about our feelings and feeling them are not the same thing. So having attention directed to the body, including the body, we can know the narrative or the story we have about the person that we're thinking about. But registering it through the body allows us so much more information 
allows us to then be able to know what we're actually feeling and feeling it. Once we're in that neighborhood and feeling it, then we can recognize that that feeling, having been attended to, and very much attention is the same as if your feeling was kindly parented. The same activity in the brain gets triggered by mindfulness and kindness as a parent coming and hugging you or giving you attention. That's why a lot of people reparent themselves through practice who did not have a parent who actually attended to them in that very responsive way. Very many of those same kinds of healing qualities, uh, healing effects of, of having been parented get, um, get fulfilled through practice. Please. Minimizing contact. I think that that, um, I think that where I, where we, at least in the, I'm going to speak, I can tell you personally, yes, minimize. <laughs> but, but first, given the teachings, in the teachings, the, the, the first intention is to see if you can find balance and ease with that person. That you don't attribute your upset to them, but attribute your upset first to uh, your inability to stay present with them, to stay open-hearted with them. So otherwise, it's all about them blaming, and then you're, you're dancing all around trying to stay away from them so that you don't have to, but you haven't really resolved that tendency to react a particular way with that person or with people like that. So you don't really learn much. So if you start with trying to resolve your own reactions, start there and see, okay, I'm gonna, this is my guru. He's, he or she has shown up in my life to help me learn how to not leave my seat, not leave my open-heartedness, my wholeness. And I'm going to, so I'm going to try, I'm going to send loving kindness, I'm going to try to be more emotionally articulate and feel what I feel when I'm with them, get my attention off of them and really see if I can accommodate the feelings that I'm having, gain some understanding of what leads me to react in the way that I do, and I'm going to do everything I can to try to find some equilibrium with this person because I can't always change my conditions. I may not always be able to get away from people, so I'm going to try to work with it. But then there is a point where I realize I'm not able to do that with this person. This is a fire that is too hot, and I'm getting burnt, and I'm getting diminished, and I'm not able to function, at, and I need some healing, or I need some time away, or I need to actually change relationships, change towns, whatever it is. <laughs> and then that, and when, you, when you've hit that point, there's no fault, there's no failure, it's just wisdom and love that says, this is a fire that's too hot for me, and I need to take care of myself. So again, that's a general answer, but it's, there's certainly no blame in needing to, take, needing to keep away from someone. Especially if it um, truly is unsafe. 
And sometimes we even, if it's really unsafe, we need to, uh, we need to, um, we need to protect others from that person too. So that's why we're, that's why we organize. Not all about just, I'm going to resolve my, my own suffering. It's, we're all in this together. All in this together. Please. I repeat this for the, the mic. He has repeated, he has attempted to, to try to be present with people who he characterizes as difficult. To engender empathy. See points of view that are different than yours. know people who have caused us physical or emotional harm? Yes. Trauma? Mm -hmm. uh, Risk mitigation, disaster preparedness, we need to to uh, to create situations where we won't have to be in contact with that person yeah, if we've been harmed. Well, you're always everything you just described takes place in the present. Risk avoidance is presently uh, visioning and imagining and strategizing for a future present moment. That all takes place in the real in real time. So there's nev you never leave the present, remember, just, but don't believe me, but just look at that. Any strategizing, any remembering, any, any planning, everything that we ever do takes place in real time. We are, planning is a, a, a preparation, it's risk preparation. <laughs> it's, um, so th that all happens right now. Only if we're, uh, if, uh, does that, the question is, does that not take us into the, the venue, did you say venue of self-abandonment? If we know that we are planning, if we know that we are, if we are risk preventing, if we know that we are embodied as we're doing it, we're not self-abandoning at all. If you know what you're doing when you're doing it, the problem with risk avoidance and planning and remembering is we tend to get lost in them. We tend to enter into a kind of dreamscape and lose a sense that we're doing it in real time. And then we, then that is a kind of self-abandoning. But if I am very deliberately checking in with myself, no, I need to plan right now to, see, to make sure that my week 
unfolds as smoothly as possible, that I get all my ducks in a row. If I know that I'm doing that, there's nothing self-abandoning about it. It's exactly, it's, it's wise and loving to do that. So no, there's no, um, that's not a problem. It's being lost in it that's the problem. It's losing contact with the, um, the sense of where I am doing it. It's, it's like disassociation, yeah. That's why I say if you sometimes we don't know that we're doing it. It just means that first thing we try to have first things first. Try to make a sense of being present, the hub around which we prepare to plan, prepare to remember, prepare to accommodate whatever's showing up in real time in my relationship. Everything helps if we if we have an embodied a sense of embodied presence. Just getting back to your question, how can our bodies be uh, allow us to your body will tell you whether you're self-abandoning. It will also often call you and say, you'll feel this state of being frozen. And it will, and it may be, that's how, it's your body that calls you back here to say, oh, you've been holding your breath for the last 20 minutes trying to figure out what you're going to do next week. And instead we come back, we feel our body, let our body take a breath, which it will if we're, present with it, and then we go back to, if we need to do some planning, we do the planning with the understanding as I'm home already, nothing will make me more home than I am right here, now I can plan my week without it, the expectation that it has to make me happy, that I already have that, and now I can plan with it, less anxiety, and less worry, and I can be a little more clear a little bit more relaxed as I plan. And then maybe if I'm a little more relaxed when I plan, I'll be a little more relaxed as I execute my plan. And then I don't have to leave aware presence. I don't have to leave my body. I don't have to leave the present moment ever. If you want this sense of being at home to be your default state, it is, it is your true state. It's everybody's default state, but it's not our conditioned state. Our conditioned state is to be absent-minded. That's our conditioning. And we're unlearning that when we practice. We're trying to replace absent-mindedness with clear comprehension of where we are, what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. Just, and then see that the, the secret to, um, as Alan Watts says, the secret to happiness is always arrived at in the present moment. Just to fill in uh, Alan Watts while I'm saying it, he says we don't make music in order to, in order to reach the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, the fastest players would be the best. We'd have awards for the fastest music. <laughs> and when we dance, we don't do it in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the dance itself is the point. And the same is true in meditation and just in life in general. The, the purpose of our practice is always arrived at in the present moment.
So as his, his view is that we learn, we need to learn as a way of coming out of the tangle of, of, of our stories. We need to, as he puts it, learn to dig the present. Because he was a beat, he was a beatnik. To dig the present, to groove with the eternal now. And to see that the place where it's at is simply here and now. Please. Related to your confusion before, thank you so much for bringing it back up. <laughs> so at work, I work with a professional counselor. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> at work, you work with mostly white males, yes. Yes, experiencing injustice. Does that mean that I have to be comfortable with that? No. It it, it, the question is, do I have to be comfortable with that? Who, who would ever, what authority would ever tell you that you have to be comfortable with that? No, I think what we have to be with that is truthful about what our experience is. I think all of us, all of us want to be comfortable. That's our longing. That's what the Dalai Lama says that, that what joins us all, the purpose of our life is to be happy. And part of happy is to be comfortable. So that is, that's, that's the longing that we feel no matter what. And so that, what that, that longing does is it makes it really obvious when we're not. And so what we want in our practices, this is insight into the way things are is we want to first and foremost say, I'm really uncomfortable. I am, and I'm having very, very powerful reactions to this. So that's a simple answer to your question. What's, what happened, what about next? Yeah, so I, I would want you to, I, want, I would want you if you're, if you're willing to or able to, to just let yourself fully feel that and try, for at least for these moments while you're with me, don't try to do anything about it. Just let yourself feel that. Just sense how you feel it in your body. Tell me, and you can even tell me out loud, how does, what's that feel like in your body? Feel, heart's pounding. And, and how about now? A little calmer as you notice it. And, and how about now? Okay, feel the unhappy and unpleasant. Don't try to undo that for a moment. Just be, oh, this is what unhappy and unpleasant feels like. See if I can make a little space for that. Unpleasant, unhappy. Remember, we're not trying to do anything about it right now or undo it. We're just letting, we're trying to take in nature, our, our, the truth of how we're feeling. How about now? your present experience. What's that? A little different? It's indifferent. Indifferent, okay. Notice what indifferent is like. Let indifferent be indifferent. Wow. This is what indifference is. How about now? 
questions popping up. Confused. Okay, just let there be confusion. Confusions like this. So, in any case, we you know we could do this for for a while, and it and you would see that your feelings will change a lot, and especially if you give them attention, you'll see that they're they're fluid, and that you don't feel one thing; you may feel a whole range of things, and it's and you don't have to make anything happen. There's no, I shouldn't feel this or I shouldn't feel that. You feel it, it comes, it goes. At least, if nothing more, you see the commonality of change in whatever you're feeling. So then it, if you'd feel that, you get what I mean by that, the commonality of change, that everything, every feeling comes and goes. So at least if you know that, then you won't have to be afraid of any feeling. You'll see that it comes like weather, like this outside storm, and it, and it fades away. That makes sense? Um, no, it it will allow you to to feel that the 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 reaction that you're having to the injustice will allow you to to work with your feelings around that, and out of that, if you can if you can really open to the way you're feeling, study it a little bit, just let yourself feel it. You, in the middle of that, you may you may get this as I used the word before this ferocious sense. That's really not acceptable. That I, I can't be silent anymore. I'm going to I'm going to so that that's one way it could go. It could go into some kind of action. It could go into I don't feel safe here, and I need to I need to change venues, change jobs, or maybe I can talk to that person and let them know what happens for me when when I when I experience that. Or maybe I can talk to somebody who may help me be able to talk to that. So none of that is, there's no absolute about that, but before you can really respond to something wisely and not actually add to the suffering is you have to first get to know what you feel. And it, so I would never say that you shouldn't feel a certain thing because your feelings are completely, you know, give, given that, your body and your mind are telling there they have to be loved and respected at least i would want you know i would want to create a workplace where where you could c come and say hey you know idiot white guy <laughs> you don't even realize your power trips you don't even realize uh, the way that you, how demeaning your your kind of language is. You don't realize that you're that you're playing power trips. You know, I'm not. I have no idea what that injustice is, but um, but you since you highlighted the fact that they're white guys, there's there's often a shroud of privilege and male. You know, male and privileged is a it can be a toxic cocktail. That where guys just don't even realize the power that they have and they wield, and it's it's really important that somebody calls it out. Please. Yeah, thank you so much for putting that out because you're not alone.
passado. That's right. Beautiful. Well said, thank you. Please, yeah. Yes. Thank you for for saying that. Uh, well, for it may not appear as such since the since racism segregation is so endemic in our culture right from the beginning, but for the last twenty years we have the community has been devoted, at least to whatever degree that there was consciousness to have it be welcoming and diverse. And yet, all through the years, little bits, more and more and more, comes into the awareness of the community, of people in the community, that it has been predominantly white, and, uh, and in ways that were quite unconscious, unwelcoming. As much as the outer value was for it to be welcoming, it has not, the, 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 sh the, um, the white identity because it's so, because white people aren't aware of their white identity, <laughs> we're not aware of the places that people were feeling excluded. And so it's, there's some innocence in it, but obviously really uncomfortable. As things have, as, as people have, um, have become more awake, every, almost every member of the community has done undoing racism training. And the teachers have done Three have done lots and lots of it, still completely oblivious in so many ways. But with that training, it's come the ob has come the obvious necessity 
to, because of the natural location and demographics, the tendency is unless there is, unless there are more teachers of color, people seeing people who look like them, then it will just continue to shake out the way it does by socioeconomic or, or racial um, effects that are long standing. So there, the next teacher training, you may not be aware of this, you may be, but the next teacher training is 80% teachers of color and a few token white folks. And that is, the, and that is going to be the trend until, and, and that, that is a, it's a huge impact because, and now there's also a commitment on most teams to the extent that there are teachers of color available to have every team of teachers when in team teaching, have every team have, have a diverse team. That's not always so easy. So it's a, it, it, is a, uh, it is a conscious value. There's, if you look on our website, there's a, whole, there's a whole commitment thing, but it's actually in action. And the next teacher training, which starts in the spring, is, um, is all about, uh, and the, there's also a commitment for teams to be diverse and the new teacher training to be. And that's what has to happen. And then for each person to do their own work and to speak out, for me to, you know, I, I've, to speak out in whatever way I can, uh, that it is a value. And I hope you felt that a little today. And I, I think maybe you wouldn't have given voice to that had I not said something. So, so this is how it happens, is we wake up together. Um, so thank you. And thank you for putting that out. Thank you. And I, you know, I'm I'm very uh, appreciative of the of people of color for coming to Spirit Rock, even though it hasn't really caught up with the the needs, you know. And so it's and I know it's hard to come to a place. This feels like a relatively diverse group here, um, which is marvelous. But some of the retreats are not so diverse, and the people of color who come. Say huh, not too many people who look like me, and then the la the language people use. So it's a. It takes some courage to show up, and so, you know, if it's your first time, it's a blessing to have us. I, you know, I'm teaching the city. My Tuesday group, you know, over 30 years every Tuesday. It's it's pretty diverse, but it still has a long way to go, partly because the, the main teacher is a white guy. Please. But that you know that that person 
had to go through a lot more than a, than a white person to be in that same role. And so, really important that we, we see that not everybody floats through life with the same easefulness as, as someone else. And that's part of waking out of our own identity view. It's really, I, do you, you get how germane it is to the topic? You know, I had a feeling, oh, not many people, you know, normally my, my day-longs have, you know, close to 100 people. I knew that this was a, going to, be, I knew that it was a little smaller, which I love it. It's very intimate. I, probably people wouldn't have been so willing to communicate in a, in a much larger group. But I had a feeling that uh, people would think of this topic as somehow obscure or distant from the relevant issues that we're dealing with, the politics, the election. But to me, it, it's at the heart of it. It's at the heart of cr what creates divisiveness and division is that is not recognizing the way that we create ourselves as other or create others as other and all the ways that that is both institutionalized, systemic, and, you know, if we talk just about social justice, it would all come down to the identity view the whole time. Please. undervaluing of self, I said yeah. at the beginning. How we struggle with devaluing ourselves and you see young people devaluing themselves, yeah. As a way of valuing ourselves more, the question is, what, would, would it be to embrace all of our feelings and emotions? Yes. Dealing with deep loneliness as a, a feeling to, to yeah, I acknowledge. Like I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I'm like, you know, wrestling with the idea of what I could do to, you know, not be so lonely. And, you know, that, again, addresses what you're saying. It's like, you know, the grasping, it's like I'm trying to, like, grasp 
Yes, so she, I think I can take that. Thank you. She talked about being lonely, and then she hears the new science about people who are lonely die younger, and then she's busy dying already. And 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 then we're talking about feeling our feelings, and you know, how do we square feeling our feelings with this identity view of being the one who's lonely? And the key is not to develop an identity view around being lonely, but to feel loneliness as a changing condition, as a mood that comes. You are not defined by loneliness. Are you lonely every moment? No. When we see, the mo when we see and experience the momentariness of feelings, we realize that feeling is not something we can, that can define us. So our identity is not completely we are not completely lonely. We're not a lonely person. We experience loneliness due to conditions. And it turns out that the condition of loneliness, to some degree, is, is, um, is our community. It's our isolation. It's our individual, it's our disembodied, individualized culture that's all about me. It leaves us isolated, separate. And we house ourselves in these, in these little, we don't walk the streets anymore. We're in our cars. We sit, we're, we're in, even if we're walking down the street, you know, and I, I teach in the city, as I, you've heard, and I have dinner every Tuesday on uh, Valencia Street where there are little burrito shops and I go to a little empanada place at... Uh, between 16th and 15th and Valencia. And I often sit in the window, and before I start noodling about the Tuesday night group, I just watch people walk up and down the street. Nine out of 10 have their faces in a, in a phone. I'm not saying that this is why you're lonely. <laughs> 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 but, we, th but loneliness is a systemic issue. I actually have a beautiful quote from a, a guy named Reggie Ray, and I think it's worth waiting for. And it's really about emo how emotions, our emotions are really not ourself. And hopefully I can find it quickly. Here it is. It's from a a teacher named Reggie Ray, who's a Tibetan teacher, doctor, and he's talking about a, an African man named, uh, teacher, healer named Maladoma Somme. Maladoma Somme. As we have seen, our modern disembodiment means that people live largely within a conceptual world of their own making attempting to handle experiences by fitting them into a continuous conceptual narrative of their I or ego. As noted, the more disembodied we are, the more strident and compulsive this incessant narrative becomes. In addition, the more disembodied we are, the more isolated and disconnected we are, not just from our emotions, but from a feeling of connection with other people and the larger world. Our disconnection and isolation are reflected in the high degree of personalism 
everything is about me. Narcissism and individualism, I'm a free agent with no inherent ties or obligations to anyone or anything, found in modern societies. The personalism and individualism that mark modern people is, in other words, a direct function of their disembodiment. It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied, individualistic, and personalistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a much larger, less individualistic context. For example, Maladoma Somme speaks of emotions within a different, more transcendent frame of reference. Maladoma says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about one person alone, but rather about the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to, being, to be giving birth to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. We all need to know about loneliness. You know, if I hear about your loneliness, we all know each other's feeling. We know that's a, that opens our hearts. It's, we realize it's a systemic issue. It's, it's the whole community. Getting back to what's actually written here. A certain person is understood to be giving birth to something the entire village needs to know and needs to address. Beyond this, emotion is considered one of the primary ways that the unseen or the other world of the ancestors, the transcendent source of life, well-being, and wisdom, transmits needed life-giving information to the human community. So if we're, if like you say, we're not supposed to have feelings, that we're not validated, we're not appreciated, we're not, we're not embraced for our feelings, how do we ever communicate with these? How do we ever hear those messages? How do we ever understand the systemic cause of being lonely? Having said all that, in terms of resolving it, you know, obviously having, keeping good company. One of the way, one of the main ways that the Buddha talked about melting away the, the sense of the, the hardness of our identity view is having sangha, is and because we, our tendency to melt away our separateness is we, we fall into the mythology, it's got to be another person. And, um, you know, we live in the myth of romantic love. And not that we can't have a, a melting away with another person, but there's a lot, of, a lot of warmth and a lot of connection can come out of community. And especially people who reflect back to you your highest values. There's something very connecting and gladdening about that. So that's one of the ways we melt away our separateness. The other one is to, is to use those moments of loneliness to, to bring to mind people who you know care about you. Bring to mind people who, uh, all the other people who have a shared experience of loneliness or whatever feeling. To bring to mind, um, to do what I call stealth loving kindness onto you wishing everybody well around you, it's amazingly connectable. 
I used to feel really lonely when I first moved to San Francisco. I moved from a smaller city. I lived in the Mission, Noe Valley area of the city. Everybody seemed really, because of big cities, people aren't as much, hello, how are you? I thought, this is a cold place. And so I, I had just come out of doing many months of silence, and I had been doing intensive loving-kindness practice, so I started under my breath going, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you. And all of a sudden, just through the orientation of my thought, getting back, where's that person? Oh, she left. Just from the orientation of my thought, inclining toward, toward uh, love, the feeling I had in the community changed. So that's, you know, there are many different things, but I think the most important thing for our purposes here today is to notice that loneliness is not self. It's a feeling. It comes and it goes, and it may be, there be, may be some wisdom in it, but it doesn't define you. Where is it now? Where is loneliness now? You're just bringing it up. I moved here to go to graduate school, too. Oh, okay. All right. See, we're together. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you I'll be up there one day. <laughs> <laughs> As you wish. <laughs> oh, thank you. We, we've, the time has gotten away from us, so I think there's just a few more things that I'd like to... Any other comments, questions, before I give some closing, give a, a little more... You open to a little, a, few, a little more teaching before we. Let's see if that's. See, this is a topic that can you could spend a lifetime learning. So I think what I'll do is. Um, because we last hovered around the feelings of the feeling tones that accompany every experience. That's called the second foundation of mindfulness. Learning to be mindful of, and to accommodate experiences that are pleasant, experiences that are unpleasant, experiences that are neither unpleasant. It seems very, it seems like it's not that big a deal, but it really is the, it is the womb out of which our whole identity view flows, our reactions to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Did that come through in things that I've said up to this point? And the way the Buddha talked about it is that those reactions lead to that state, that second noble truth, the cause of suffering being a state of craving or condemning, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, and craving for sense pleasures or the avoidance of, of pain. And the Buddha did not stop at the cause of our distress being this, this habit of going out in search that generates the whole identity view. And I, I want to read before I, I want to read a passage from, the, this is from the Mahayana school considered the person who founded the, Mah the Mahayana Buddhism, a, a teacher named Nagarjuna. 
you can remember this name, Nagarjuna. His work is really beautiful. There's a book in the bookstore of some of his most pithy teachings called Verses from the Center that talks about the awakening as a, um, as a practice. And, but this is one of his passages, and it's entitled, it's a poem called Entitled Someone. So that's you. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and the world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality, and as I read this, this is the way the Buddha described what he called dependent origination. The, the links of dependent origination are the links of what, of what causes us moment by moment to incarnate as somebody, to go through the cycles of life that I described both in our thoughts, how we leave the, the, how we lose a sense of freedom and how we wander a long time confused, how we keep wandering uh, looking for that future that never arrives, and how we get caught. And it's, it's described in the teachings as this link of dependent. If you have this, then this happens. If you have this, that happens. And one of those links is if you have feeling, it produces reactions, liking, disliking. If you have liking and disliking, it produces uh, desire. If you have desire, it produces craving. If you, if you have craving, it produces becoming. If you have becoming, it produces life, birth, sickness, old age, and death. And the cycle of life and death keep going around. You keep going around the wheel of what's called samsara, this endless wandering. That is how the, the self-idea is perpetuated again and again. And this happens moment by moment. So just getting back to the way he wrote this says, personality creates self-consciousness, such as attention, eye, the eye and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, the senses, and the world. That's called contact, where in order to have contact, you have to have senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And and in order to have a, an experience of one of those, you have, to have a, you have to have an object. You have to have a sight. You have to have a sound, a smell, a taste. So when those two come together, that's called contact, a sight and, a, and the eye. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and cells. Now, I, I want to stop there. When our mind is in a state of clinging and craving, caught up in our little internal narrative, does that make sense when I say the little internal narrative? Usually what we're caught up in is basically four things. We're caught up in, in craving. It's called, uh, called ditti papancha. Ditti means, um, or it's called tanha papancha, T-A-N-H-A. Tanha papancha, we're spinning out 
in a thought of ourselves in search of some kind of pleasure. That's a lot of our preoccupation, search for pleasure. The second thing that we're preoccupied with is um, views and opinions. We're, we're creating an identity around what we believe and then what we think other people should believe because you know, it translates into our, our differences. And we get very identified. That's why so many family members and friends are, are, don't talk to each other now because of their identity with views and opinions, especially during this most polarized period of my lifetime that I've noticed. So from a Dharma perspective, Something's got to give. People have to, people have to stop blaming and look at their own identity with their views and do whatever it is that melts away that sense of othering uh, and not necessarily agree with someone else but not put them out of their heart because what we do is when we separate is we put people out of our heart. We don't, don't like them don't, because they don't agree with us. So that just reinforces that personality view. The third thing that we tend to get, build a lot of identity, so it's, there's what's called um, ditti papancha. That's about views and opinions. Ditti means views. Remember sakaya ditti, view of self. So ditti papancha is all of our views about things. And then we tend to also, which is very closely related to views and opinions, is we tend to build up a lot of identity about about right and wrong, what people should, how people should do things, what the right way to do things is, what the wrong way to do things is. And the way that translates in our spirituality is we get attached to rites and rituals. You know, how you're supposed to sit, how you're sp whether, you, whether you pay attention to your breath at the nostrils or the belly, worried about doing it right, lighting your incense, all these not, these these things that have nothing to do with anything, but we get a whole identity around it and then fight with us. We, get, we argue with each other over, over rites and rituals. And then the last thing that we, the fundamental thing that subsumes all of them is we, so much of our narrative is just about uh, Sakaya Ditti, just spinning out about, it's called Mana Papancha. Mana in this case means conceit otherwise known as the comparing mind, we're constantly building a sense of self around the measurement of whether we're good, better, best, whether above, below, or equal to someone else. Any of you ever have a comparing mind? <laughs> so this is a lot of our, of Sakaya Ditti is around comparing mind. Now in in psychology, it's not examined very carefully. In, the, in Buddhist psychology, there are three kinds of comparing. I already alluded to them. And the, the beauty of knowing these is we can start to recognize them in real time and know that, again, a thought of myself is not myself. It's a comparison or it's a judgment or it's whatever kind of thought it is. But it's not, it, doesn't, it can't capture me. So the three kinds of mana or comparing or conceit are what's called atimana, which means putting yourself above others, the superiority view. Second one's called mana, which is the equality view. I'm equal to. A lot of measuring goes on to make sure we're, at least we're equal to others. 
And then the amana, which is the inferiority view, where we put ourselves down. I don't, I'm not enough. I'm you know, something like that. And again, these views about ourselves can never capture what and who we are in real time. They capture a feeling, capture a view of reality. And once we make the shift from acting out of that view and then feeling small and, and uh, not enough or inflated and, and better than everyone, we step out of that and notice, oh, aren't you getting inflated today? Or, you know, as I talked about before when doing walking meditation, uh, one of my friends noticed on, um, on a long practice period, he was doing very slow walking and somebody would walk nearby and he would notice himself start to prop up. And so he started using the mental labeling, which is part of our practice. He would say, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And then when he started to notice this superiority view, this inflation, he would say, lifting, moving, placing, looking good, looking good, <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. And rather than being identified with that, that looking good, that inflation, he was able to relate to it as just a habit of mind that could never really capture who he is. Just to, it's what we do. We put ourselves above, below. So it comes sometimes in the form of a feeling, sometimes in the form of this kind of measurement, this kind of thought. And we can come out of the tangle of that by noticing it. So the comparing mind, the mind that's caught up in doing things right, the mind that's caught up in views and opinions, and the mind that's caught up in what I want to happen, what I want. Uh, these are four main ways that we incarnate as the imagined version of ourselves, or otherwise known as Sakaya Ditti. We also know it by our feelings, because each of these comes with because they're tethered to ideas, all these identities around what we want, what we believe, because it's based on thoughts and ideas, these identities are very fragile, very unreliable. Now, some of our, some of our opinions and views and ways of being seem like they're hardwired, that that really is us. But most of these are conditioned by circumstances, and they can alter according to conditions. But because we're, our tendency is to look for security and try to look for security in our identities, any of you ever try to do that? Try to, I want to be the be good, I want to get fortified, I want to be the best, strongest trying to find security in a view that is fundamentally insecure leaves us more and more insecure. And the tendency, when we feel our insecurity, our vulnerability, our, the effect of, of, being, of having our view of ourself be threatened or, or attacked or, or somebody not seeing us the way we want to be seen, is we tend to, to crumble. And when we crumble appropriately, because the egos are unreliable and insecure, we tend to then judge ourselves, getting back to what you were saying, judge ourselves for feeling vulnerable, feeling tender, 
instead of what's really needed and why the teachings have the balance, the equal need for not only the wisdom of seeing that these self-views are empty, but the love and the compassion and mercy to see that we are all tender because of, because of our vulnerability, because, of the, the un, because our views about ourselves are not possible to secure. We're all inherently vulnerable. And what's needed to hold that is loving kindness and not judgment. And so we, we fill our minds, we fill our practice with attention to see clearly what our mind is doing, but we have an equal measure of, of mercy and kindness, self-compassion. And many of you probably know the, the movement of self-compassion is really sweeping through the psychological world these days. And the, the main mover and the shaker in the self-compassion world is a woman named Kristen Neff, who is a yogi. And her partner, Chris, I forgot his last name, but, but they're both yogis. Uh, Kristen has been coming to my retreats for 25 years, and she learned, that, learned in the Dharma that was the peace... The peace which she found in the Dharma was missing from psychology, this, this, this necessity of self-compassion. And it really is the salve that eases our, our need to be perfect, need to fill some impossible ideal of this great, wondrous self. And it allows us to then feel that, that in fact, without... Uh, without any view of self. Just getting back to that early teaching I gave in the morning, without any view of self, we're the most peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. And we start to, we start to be ourselves, not have a view of ourselves. We, the Buddha was clearly himself. He could argue a point with the best of them. He was strong. He was fierce. He was clear. He didn't care about what anybody thought about him. But it wasn't a self-view. It was, it was a sense of himself built on the strength of heart and mind, clarity, wisdom, compassion. And for that, you know, I don't, do you think I have to have a self to speak to you? If I start thinking about myself and having a view, I'll start to feel self-conscious and, and things won't come, th come out of my mouth very, very clearly. I'll start, everything will get stilted in some way. When there is an absence of self-view, life just flows through each of us. But at first we need to have some experience of knowing that without a view of self, we don't just vanish into thin air. We're still here much more vividly, much more lovingly, much more curiously. We're here, uniquely individual, but not absorbed in our self-view. Does this make sense, this difference between a view of self and the one that sits here right now, which is not so easy to put into words?
And in the silence of our time together, you know, when we're letting ourselves touch into that, that world of non-self, you could say, not caught up in our separateness, non-separateness. Perhaps you can understand the words of Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you, and me, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. So, non-separate. The alternative is Kabir. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. <laughs> I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. So this is what we want to see is really just of you. Just of you. Yes, this is a good place to end here from Galway Canal, the poem, St. Francis and the Sow. So. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, and to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I think that's, there's more to the poem. but So what we've been doing today, hopefully, is reteaching ourselves in words, touch, that we're lovely hopefully recognizing, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, that you are the richest person on earth whose ego mind has been going around begging for a living. Right? Hopefully you stopped being the destitute child. You came home today a little bit and reclaimed your heritage, having no view of self for a moment. Maybe you can touch that piece. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
the increasing continuity of real-time awareness mixed with kindness today. Perhaps there's been a little abeyance of, of the chronic view of ourself. And with that abeyance, temporary abeyance of our different views of self, perhaps you felt by direct experience that sense of non-separateness, that we don't exist independently apart from each other, that we inter-are as Thich Nhat Hanh says. So to whatever measure we felt our sense of interbeing, we know that whatever we do, think, or say, not only affects us, but affects all beings everywhere, all at once. And we, as a tradition, take any of the effect that we found in our own practice, any goodness, any fruits, any benefits, any merit that has arisen from our practice, and we we not only know that our practice has an impact, but we intentionally share the benefits of our practice together. We give freely the effects of our practice, and we send them with a blessing and a wish, that same wish that we have for ourselves that all beings can know a sense of happiness and well-being and know the causes of well-being and happiness, which is virtue, presence, wisdom, love, and a deep wish that all beings, without exception, can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, non-virtue, hatred, ignorance, And a deep wish that all beings recognize the vijja, the intrinsic freedom, the sacred happiness that is without sorrow, always to be found here and now, and never stray away from that. And a deep wish that, that all beings at least grow in serenity and equanimity able to meet the inevitable joys and sorrows with less reactivity. Deep wish that all beings can learn to sit in the middle of life with our heart open, courageous, ready to organize and act. And a deep wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings see through the illusion of self, separate self. May all beings see through the illusion of other. May all beings know their fundamental unity. May all beings be liberated.
Thank you so much for the day, for practicing, for sitting, all beings, thank you, and uh, hope to see you some Tuesday night, every Tuesday, uh, 7.30 in the mission. Also, if you're not able to be there, all the Tuesday talks are on audio and video, and uh, so come one, come all, and hope to see you sometime soon, and thanks for your practice. All right, my next, my next uh, Tuesday or my next um, retreat here will be on wisdom and love on February 26th, and and also you might look on the Mission Dharma website, Mission Dharma. It also has my schedule in other parts of the world and uh, and the half day retreats I do in the city. Also, the book. Uh, thanks for any support of the book. Uh, it's a very simple book. It's, you can give it to all your, your um, friends and neighbors who think you've gone off the deep end because it's stripped of all Buddhist language. <laughs> anyway, it's, hopefully it, it's a book that will keep reminding you to come back to the living present. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.